little skunk ever hear of it, to snatch it right from under our nose. Well, I've never trusted him anyway, Keating shrugged. Human nature. The bitterness in his voice was sincere. He had received no gratitude from Stengel. Stengel's parting remark to him had been only, You're a worse bastard than I thought you were. Good luck. You'll be a great architect some day. Thus Keating achieved the position of chief designer for Francon and Hire. Francon celebrated the occasion with a modest little orgy at one of the quieter and costlier restaurants. In a couple of years, he kept repeating, in a couple of years you'll see things happening, Pete. You're a good boy and I like you and I'll do things for you. Haven't I done things for you? You're going, Laces Pete. In a couple of years. Your tie's crooked, Guy, said Keating dryly. And you're spilling brandy all over your vest. Facing his first task of designing, Keating thought of Tim Davis, of Stengel, of many others who had wanted it, had struggled for it, had tried, had been beaten. By him. It was a triumphant feeling. It was a tangible affirmation of his greatness. Then he found himself suddenly in his glass-enclosed office, looking down at a blank sheet of paper, alone. Something rolled in his throat down to his stomach, cold and empty. His old feeling of the dropping hold. He leaned against the table, closing his eyes. It had never been quite real to him before that this was the thing actually expected of him. To fill a sheet of paper. To create something on a sheet of paper. It was only a small residence, but instead of seeing it rise before him, he saw it sinking. He saw its shape as a pit in the ground, and as a pit within him. As emptiness, with only Davis and Stengel rattling uselessly within it. Francone had said to him about the building, It must have dignity, you know, dignity, nothing freaky, a structure of elegance, and stay within the budget. Which was Francone's conception of giving his designer ideas and letting him work them out. Through a cold stupor, Keating thought of the clients laughing in his face. He heard the thin, omnipotent voice of Ellsworth Toohey calling his attention to the opportunities open to him in the field of plumbing. He hated every piece of stone on the face of the earth. He hated himself for having chosen to be an architect. When he began to draw, he tried not to think of the job he was doing. He thought only that Francone had done it, and Stengel, even higher, and all the others, and that he could do it, if they could. He spent many days on his preliminary sketches. He spent long hours in the library of Francone and Hire, selecting from classic photographs the appearance of his house. He felt the tension melting in his mind. It was right, and it was good, that house growing under his hand, because men were still worshipping the masters who had done it before him. He did not have to wonder, to fear, or to take chances. It had been done for him. When the drawings were ready, he stood looking at them uncertainly. Were he to be told that this was the best or the ugliest house in the world, he would agree with either. He was not sure. He had to be sure. He thought of Stanton and of what he had relied upon when working on his assignments there. He telephoned Cameron's office and asked for Howard Rourke. He came to Rourke's room that night and spread before him the plans, the elevations, the perspective of his first building. 
Rourke stood over it, his arms spread wide, his hands holding the edge of the table, and he said nothing for a long time. Keating waited anxiously. He felt anger growing with his anxiety, because he could see no reason for being so anxious. When he couldn't stand it, he spoke. You know, Howard, everybody says Stengel's the best designer in town. And I don't think he was really ready to quit. But I made him, and I took his place. I had to do some pretty fine thinking to work that. I... He stopped. It did not sound bright and proud, as it would have sounded anywhere else. It sounded like begging. Rourke turned and looked at him. Rourke's eyes were not contemptuous, only a little wider than usual, attentive and puzzled. He said nothing and turned back to the drawings. Keating felt naked. Davis, Stengel, Francone meant nothing here. People were his protection against people. Rourke had no sense of people. Others gave Keating a feeling of his own value. Rourke gave him nothing. He thought that he should seize his drawings and run. The danger was not Rourke. The danger was that he, Keating, remained. Rourke turned to him. Do you enjoy doing this sort of thing, Peter? he asked. Oh, I know, said Keating, his voice shrill. I know you don't approve of it, but this is business. I just want to know what you think of this practically, not philosophically, not... No, I'm not going to preach to you. I was only wondering. If you could help me, Howard, if you could just help me with it a little. It's my first house, and it means so much to me at the office, and I'm not sure. What do you think? Will you help me, Howard? All right. Rourke threw aside the sketch of the graceful façade with the fluted pilasters, the broken pediments, the Roman facies over the windows, and the two eagles of empire by the entrance. He picked up the plans. He took a sheet of tracing paper, threw it over the plan, and began to draw. Keating stood watching the pencil in Rourke's hand. He saw his imposing entrance foyer disappearing, his twisted corridors, his lightless corners, he saw an immense living room growing in the space he had thought too limited, a wall of giant windows facing the garden, a spacious kitchen. He watched for a long time. And the façade? he asked, when Rourke threw the pencil down. I can't help you with that. If you must have it classic, have it good classic at least. You don't need three pilasters where one will do. And take those ducks off the door. It's too much. Keating smiled at him gratefully when he was leaving, his drawings under his arm. He descended the stairs, hurt and angry. He worked for three days, making new plans from Rourke's sketches, and a new simpler elevation, and he presented his house to Francone with a proud gesture that looked like a flourish. Well, said Francone, studying it. Well, I declare. What an imagination you have, Peter. I wonder, it's a bit daring, but I wonder, he coughed and added, it's just what I had in mind. Of course, said Keating, I studied your buildings and I tried to think of what you'd do, and if it's good, it's because I think I know how to catch your ideas. Francone smiled, and Keating thought suddenly that Francone did not really believe it and knew that Keating did not believe it, and yet they were both contented bound tighter together by a common method and a common guilt.
The letter on Cameron's desk informed him regretfully that after earnest consideration, the board of directors of the Security Trust Company had not been able to accept his plans for the building to house the new Astoria branch of the company, and that the commission had been awarded to the firm of Gould and Pettingill. A check was attached to the letter in payment for his preliminary drawings, as agreed. The amount was not enough to cover the expense of making those drawings. The letter lay spread out on the desk. Cameron sat before it, drawn back, not touching the desk, his hands gathered in his lap, the back of one and the palm of the other, the fingers tight. It was only a small piece of paper, but he sat huddled and still because it seemed to be a supernatural thing, like radium, sending forth rays that would hurt him if he moved and exposed his skin to them. For three months he had awaited the commission of the Security Trust Company. One after another, the chances that had loomed before him at rare intervals in the last two years had vanished, looming in vague promises, vanishing in firm refusals. One of his draftsmen had had to be discharged long ago. The landlord had asked questions, politely at first, then dryly, then rudely and openly. But no one in the office had minded that, nor the usual arrears and salaries. There had been the commission of the Security Trust Company. The vice president, who had asked Cameron to submit drawings, had said, I know some of the directors won't see it as I do, but go ahead, Mr. Cameron. Take the chance with me, and I'll fight for you. Cameron had taken the chance. He and Rourke had worked savagely to have the plans ready on time, before time, before Gould and Pettingill could submit theirs. Pettingill was a cousin of the bank president's wife and a famous authority on the ruins of Pompeii. The bank president was an ardent admirer of Julius Caesar, and had once, while in Rome, spent an hour and a quarter in reverent inspection of the Colosseum. Cameron and Rourke and a pot of black coffee had lived in the office from dawn till frozen dawn for many days, and Cameron had thought involuntarily of the electric bill, but made himself forget it. The light still burned in the drafting room in the early hours, when he sent Rourke out for sandwiches, and Rourke found gray morning in the streets while it was still night in the office, in the windows facing a high brick wall. On the last day, it was Rourke who had ordered Cameron home after midnight because Cameron's hands were jerking and his knees kept seeking the tall drafting stool for support, leaning against it with a slow, cautious, sickening precision. Rourke had taken him down to a taxi, and in the light of a street lamp, Cameron had seen Rourke's face, drawn, the eyes kept wide artificially, the lips dry. The next morning Cameron had entered the drafting room and found the coffee pot on the floor, on its side over a black puddle, and Rourke's hand in the puddle, palm up, fingers half-closed. Rourke's body stretched out on the floor, his head thrown back, fast asleep. On the table, Cameron had found the plans. Finished. He sat looking at the letter on his desk. The degradation was that he could not think of those nights behind him. He could not think of the building that should have risen in Astoria, and of the building that would now take its place. It was that he thought only of the bill, unpaid, to the electric company. In these last two years Cameron had disappeared from his office for weeks at a time and Rourke had not found him at home, and had known what was happening but could only wait, hoping for Cameron's safe return. Then Cameron had lost even the shame of his agony, and had come to his office reeling, recognizing no one, openly drunk and flaunting it before the walls of the only place on earth he had respected. Rourke learned to face his own landlord with the quiet statement that he could not pay him for another week. The landlord was afraid of him and did not insist. 
Peter Keating heard of it somehow, as he always heard everything he wanted to know. He came to Rourke's unheated room one evening and sat down, keeping his overcoat on. He produced a wallet, pulled out five ten-dollar bills, and handed them to Rourke. You need it, Howard. I know you need it. Don't start protesting now. You can pay me back any time. Rourke looked at him, astonished, took the money, saying, Yes, I need it. Thank you, Peter. Then Keating said, What in hell are you doing wasting yourself on old Cameron? Why do you want to live like this for? Chuck it, Howard, and come with us. All I have to do is say so. Francone will be delighted. We'll start you at sixty a week. Rourke took the money out of his pocket and handed it back to him. Oh, for God's sake, Howard, I, I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't either. But please, Howard, keep it anyway. Good night, Peter. Rourke was thinking of that when Cameron entered the drafting room, the letter from the Security Trust Company in his hand. He gave the letter to Rourke, said nothing, turned and walked back to his office. Rourke read the letter and followed him. Whenever they lost another commission, Rourke knew that Cameron wanted to see him in the office, but not to speak of it. Just to see him there, to talk of other things, to lean upon the reassurance of his presence. On Cameron's desk, Rourke saw a copy of the New York Banner. It was the leading newspaper of the great Wynand chain. It was a paper he would have expected to find in a kitchen, in a barber shop, in a third-rate drawing room, in the subway. Anywhere but in Cameron's office. Cameron saw him looking at it and grinned. Picked it up this morning on my way here. Funny, isn't it? I didn't know we'd get that letter today. And yet it seems appropriate together, this paper and that letter. Don't know what made me buy it. A sense of symbolism, I suppose. Look at it, Howard. It's interesting. Rourke glanced through the paper. The front page carried the picture of an unwed mother with thick, glistening lips who had shot her lover. The picture headed the first installment of her autobiography and a detailed account of her trial. The other pages ran a crusade against utility companies, a daily horoscope, extracts from church sermons, recipes for young brides, pictures of girls with beautiful legs, advice on how to hold a husband, a baby contest, a poem proclaiming that to wash dishes was nobler than to write a symphony, an article proving that a woman who had borne a child was automatically a saint. That's our answer, Howard. That's the answer given to you and to me, this paper, that it exists and that it's liked. Can you fight that? Have you any words to be heard and understood by that? They shouldn't have sent us the letter. They should have sent a copy of Winan's Banner. It would be simpler and clearer. Do you know that in a few years that incredible bastard, Gail Winand, will rule the world? It will be a beautiful world. And perhaps he's right. Cameron held the paper outstretched, weighing it on the palm of his hand. To give them what they want, Howard, and to let them worship you for it, for licking their feet. Or, or what? What's the use? Only it doesn't matter. Nothing matters. Not even that it doesn't matter to me any more. Then he looked at Rourke. He added, If only I could hold on until I've started you on your own, Howard. Don't speak of that. I want to speak of that. It's funny, Howard. Next spring it will be three years that you've been here. Seems so much longer, doesn't it? Well, have I taught you anything? 
I'll tell you. I've taught you a great deal and nothing. No one can teach you anything, not at the core, at the source of it. What you're doing, it's yours, not mine. I can only teach you to do it better. I can give you the means, but the aim, the aim's your own. You won't be a little disciple putting up anemic little things in early Jacobean or late Cameron. What you'll be, if only I could live to see it. You'll live to see it, and you know it now. Cameron stood looking at the bare walls of his office, at the white piles of bills on his desk, at the sooty rain trickling slowly down the window panes. I have no answer to give them, Howard. I'm leaving you to face them. You'll answer them. All of them, the Wynand papers and what makes the Wynand papers possible and what lies behind that. It's a strange mission to give you. I don't know what our answer is to be. I know only that there is an answer and that you're holding it. That you're the answer, Howard. And someday you'll find the words for it. Chapter 6 Sermons in Stone by Ellsworth M. Toohey was published in January of the year 1925. It had a fastidious jacket of midnight blue with plain silver letters and a silver pyramid in one corner. It was subtitled, Architecture for Everybody, and its success was sensational. It presented the entire history of architecture, from mud hut to skyscraper, in the terms of the man in the street. But it made these terms appear scientific. Its author stated in his preface that it was an attempt to bring architecture where it belongs, to the people. He stated further that he wished to see the average man think and speak of architecture as he speaks of baseball. He did not bore his readers with the technicalities of the five orders, the post and lintel, the flying buttress, or reinforced concrete. He filled his pages with homey accounts of the daily life of the Egyptian housekeeper, the Roman shoe cobbler, the mistress of Louis the Fourteenth, what they ate, how they washed, where they shopped, and what effect their buildings had upon their existence. But he gave his readers the impression that they were learning all they had to know about the five orders and the reinforced concrete. He gave his readers the impression that there were no problems, no achievements, no reaches of thought beyond the common daily routine of people nameless in the past as they were in the present, that science had no goal and no expression beyond its influence on this routine, that merely by living through their own obscure days his readers were representing and achieving all the highest objectives of any civilization. His scientific precision was impeccable and his erudition astounding. No one could refute him on the cooking utensils of Babylon or the doormats of Byzantium. He wrote with the flash and the color of a first-hand observer. He did not plod laboriously through the centuries. He danced, said the critics, down the road of the ages as a jester, a friend, and a prophet. He said that architecture was truly the greatest of the arts because it was anonymous, as all greatness. He said that the world had many famous buildings, but few renowned builders, which was as it should be, since no one man had ever created anything of importance in architecture, or elsewhere for that matter. The few whose names had lived were really impostors, expropriating the glory of the people as others expropriated its wealth. When we gaze at the magnificence of an ancient monument and ascribe its achievement to one man, we are guilty of spiritual embezzlement. We forget the army of craftsmen, unknown and unsung, who preceded him in the darkness of the ages, who toiled humbly. All heroism is humble. 
each contributing his small share to the common treasure of his time. A great building is not the private invention of some genius or other. It is merely a condensation of the spirit of a people. He explained that the decadence of architecture had come when private property replaced the communal spirit of the Middle Ages, and that the selfishness of individual owners, who built for no purpose save to satisfy their own bad taste, all claim to an individual taste is bad taste, had ruined the planned effect of cities. He demonstrated that there was no such thing as free will, since men's creative impulses were determined, as all else, by the economic structure of the epoch in which they lived. He expressed admiration for all the great historical styles, but admonished against their wanton mixture. He dismissed modern architecture, stating that, so far, it has represented nothing but the whim of isolated individuals, has borne no relation to any great spontaneous mass movement, and as such is of no consequence. He predicted a better world to come, where all men would be brothers and their buildings would become harmonious and all alike, in the great tradition of Greece, the mother of democracy. When he wrote this, he managed to convey, with no tangible break in the detached calm of his style, that the words now seen in ordered print had been blurred in manuscript by a hand unsteady with emotion. He called upon architects to abandon their selfish quest for individual glory and dedicate themselves to the embodiment of the mood of their people. Architects are servants, not leaders. They are not to assert their little egos, but to express the soul of their country and the rhythm of their time. They are not to follow the delusions of their personal fancy, but to seek the common denominator which will bring their work close to the heart of the masses. Architects, ah, my friends, theirs is not to reason why. Theirs is not to command, but to be commanded. The advertisements for sermons in stone carried quotations from critics. Magnificent, a stupendous achievement, unequaled in all art history. Your chance to get acquainted with a charming man and a profound thinker. Mandatory reading for anyone aspiring to the title of intellectual. There seemed to be a great many aspiring to that title. Readers acquired erudition without study, authority without cost, judgment without effort. It was pleasant to look at buildings and criticize them with a professional manner and with the memory of page 439, to hold artistic discussions and exchange the same sentences from the same paragraphs. In distinguished drawing-rooms, one could soon hear it said, Architecture! Oh, yes, Ellsworth Toohey. According to his principles, Ellsworth M. Toohey listed no architect by name in the text of his book. The myth-building, hero-worshipping method of historical research has always been obnoxious to me. The names appeared only in footnotes. Several of these referred to Guy Francone, who has a tendency to the over-ornate, but must be commended for his loyalty to the strict tradition of classicism. One note referred to Henry Cameron, prominent once as one of the fathers of the so-called modern school of architecture, and relegated since to a well-deserved oblivion. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. In February of 1925, Henry Cameron retired from practice. For a year he had known that the day would come, he had not spoken of it to Rourke, but they both knew and went on, expecting nothing save to go on as long as it was still possible. A few commissions had dribbled into their office in the past year, country cottages, garages, remodeling of old buildings. They took anything. But the drops stopped. The pipes were dry. The water had been turned off by a society to whom Cameron had never paid his bill. 
Simpson and the old man in the reception room had been dismissed long ago. Only Rourke remained, to sit still through the winter evenings and look at Cameron's body slumped over his desk, arms flung out, head on arms, a bottle glistening under the lamp. Then one day in February, when Cameron had touched no alcohol for weeks, he reached for a book on a shelf and collapsed at Rourke's feet, suddenly, simply, finally. Rourke took him home, and the doctor stated that an attempt to leave his bed would be all the death sentence Cameron needed. Cameron knew it. He lay still on his pillow. His hands dropped obediently, one at each side of his body, his eyes unblinking and empty. Then he said, You'll close the office for me, Howard, will you? Yes, said Rourke. Cameron closed his eyes and would say nothing else and Rourke sat all night by his bed, not knowing whether the old man slept or not. A sister of Cameron's appeared from somewhere in New Jersey. She was a meek little old lady with white hair, trembling hands, and a face one could never remember, quiet, resigned, and gently hopeless. She had a meager little income, and she assumed the responsibility of taking her brother to her home in New Jersey. She had never married and had no one else in the world. She was neither glad nor sorry of the burden. She had lost all capacity for emotion many years ago. On the day of his departure, Cameron handed to Rourke a letter he had written in the night, written painfully, an old drawing board on his knees, a pillow propping his back. The letter was addressed to a prominent architect. It was Rourke's introduction to a job. Rourke read it, and, looking at Cameron, nodded his own hands, tore the letter across, folded the pieces, and tore it again. No, said Rourke. You're not going to ask them for anything. Don't worry about me. Cameron nodded and kept silent for a long time. Then he said, You'll close up the office, Howard. You'll let them keep the furniture for their rent, but you'll take the drawing that's on the wall in my room there and you'll ship it to me. Only that. You'll burn everything else, all the papers, the files, the drawings, the contracts. Everything. Yes, said Rourke. Miss Cameron came with the orderlies and the stretcher, and they rode in an ambulance to the ferry. At the entrance to the ferry, Cameron said to Rourke, You're going back now, he added. You'll come to see me, Howard. Not too often. Rourke turned and walked away, while they were carrying Cameron to the pier. It was a gray morning and there was the cold, rotting smell of the sea in the air. A gull dipped low over the street, gray like a floating piece of newspaper, against a corner of damp, streaked stone. That evening Rourke went to Cameron's closed office. He did not turn on the lights. He made a fire in the Franklin heater in Cameron's room, and emptied drawer after drawer into the fire, not looking down at them. The papers rustled dryly in the silence. A thin odor of mold rose through the dark room, and the fire hissed, crackling, leaping in bright streaks. At times a white flake with charred edges would flutter out of the flames. He pushed it back with the end of a steel ruler. These were the drawings of Cameron's famous buildings, and of buildings unbuilt. There were blueprints with the thin white lines that were girders still standing somewhere. There were contracts with famous signatures. And at times, from out of the red glow, there flashed a sum of seven figures written on yellowed paper flashed and went down in a thin burst of sparks. From among the letters in an old folder, 
A newspaper clipping fluttered to the floor. Rourke picked it up. He was dry, brittle, and yellow, and it broke at the folds in his fingers. It was an interview given by Henry Cameron, dated May 7, 1892. It said, Architecture is not a business, not a career, but a crusade and a consecration to a joy that justifies the existence of the earth. He dropped the clipping into the fire and reached for another folder. He gathered every stub of pencil from Cameron's desk and threw them in also. He stood over the heater. He did not move. He did not look down. He felt the movement of the glow, a faint shudder at the edge of his vision. He looked at the drawing of the skyscraper that had never been built, hanging on the wall before him. It was Peter Keating's third year with the firm of Francone and Hire. He carried his head high, his body erect with studied uprightness. He looked like the picture of a successful young man in advertisements for high-priced razors or medium-priced cars. He dressed well and watched people noticing it. He had an apartment off Park Avenue, modest but fashionable, and he bought three valuable etchings, as well as a first edition of a classic he had never read nor opened since. Occasionally he escorted clients to the Metropolitan Opera. He appeared once at a fancy-dress arts ball and created a sensation by his costume of a medieval stone-cutter, scarlet velvet and tights. He was mentioned in a society page account of the event, the first mention of his name in print, and he saved the clipping. He had forgotten his first building, and the fear and doubt of its birth. He had learned that it was so simple. His clients would accept anything, so long as he gave them an imposing facade, a majestic entrance, and a regal drawing-room with which to astound their guests. It worked out to everyone's satisfaction. Keating did not care so long as his clients were impressed. The clients did not care so long as their guests were impressed, and the guests did not care anyway. Mrs. Keating rented her house in Stanton and came to live with him in New York. He did not want her. He could not refuse, because she was his mother and he was not expected to refuse. He met her with some eagerness. He could at least impress her by his rise in the world. She was not impressed. She inspected his rooms, his clothes, his bank books, and said only, It'll do, Petey, for the time being. She made one visit to his office and departed within a half hour. That evening he had to sit still, squeezing and cracking his knuckles for an hour and a half, while she gave him advice. That fellow Withers had a much more expensive suit than yours, Petey. That won't do. You've got to watch your prestige before those boys. The little one who brought in those blueprints, I didn't like the way he spoke to you. Oh, nothing, nothing, only I'd keep my eye on him. The one with the long nose is no friend of yours. Never mind, I just know. Watch out for the one they call Bennett. I'd get rid of him if I were you. He's ambitious. I know the signs. Then she asked, Guy Francone, has he any children? One daughter. Oh, said Mrs. Keating. What is she like? I've never met her. Really, Peter, she said. It's downright rude to Mr. Francone if you've made no effort to meet his family. She's been away at college, Mother. I'll meet her some day. It's getting late, Mother, and I've got a lot of work to do tomorrow. But he thought of it that night and the following day. He had thought of it before and often. He knew that Francone's daughter had graduated from college long ago and was now working on the banner where she wrote a small column on home decoration. 
he had been able to learn nothing else about her. No one in the office seemed to know her. Francone never spoke of her. On that following day at luncheon, Keating decided to face the subject. I hear such nice things about your daughter, he said to Francone. Where did you hear nice things about her? Francone asked ominously. Oh, well, you know how it is. One hears things. And she writes brilliantly. Yes, she writes brilliantly. Francone's mouth snapped shut. Really, Guy, I'd love to meet her. Francone looked at him and sighed wearily. You know she's not living with me, said Francone. She has an apartment of her own. I'm not sure that I even remember the address. Oh, I suppose you'll meet her some day. You won't like her, Peter. Now, why do you say that? It's one of those things, Peter. As a father, I'm afraid I'm a total failure. Said Peter, what did Mrs. Mannering say about that new stairway arrangement? Keating felt angry, disappointed, and relieved. He looked at Francone's squat figure and wondered what appearance his daughter must have inherited to earn her father's so obvious disfavor. Rich and ugly as sin, like most of them, he decided. He thought that this need not stop him, some day. He was glad only that the day was postponed. He thought, with new eagerness, that he would go to see Catherine tonight. Mrs. Keating had met Catherine in Stanton. She had hoped that Peter would forget. Now she knew that he had not forgotten, even though he seldom spoke of Catherine and never brought her to his home. Mrs. Keating did not mention Catherine by name, but she chatted about penniless girls who hooked brilliant young men, about promising boys whose careers had been wrecked by marriage to the wrong woman, and she read to him every newspaper account of a celebrity divorcing his plebeian wife who could not live up to his eminent position. Keating thought, as he walked toward Catherine's house that night, of the few times he had seen her. They had been such unimportant occasions, but they were the only days he remembered of his whole life in New York. He found, in the middle of her uncle's living room, when she let him in, a mess of letters spread all over the carpet, a portable typewriter, newspapers, scissors, boxes, and a pot of glue. Oh, dear, said Catherine, flopping limply down on her knees in the midst of the litter. Oh, dear. She looked up at him, smiling disarmingly, her hands raised and spread over the crinkling white piles. She was almost twenty now, and looked no older than she had looked at seventeen. Sit down, Peter. I thought I'd be through before you came, but I guess I'm not. It's Uncle's fan mail and his press clippings. I've got to sort it out and answer it and file it and write notes of thanks, and... Oh, you should see some of the things people write to him. It's wonderful. Don't stand there. Sit down, will you? I'll be through in a minute. You're through right now, he said, picking her up in his arms, carrying her to a chair. He held her and kissed her, and she laughed happily, her head buried on his shoulder. He said, Katie, you're an impossible little fool, and your hair smells so nice. She said, Don't move, Peter. I'm comfortable. Katie, I want to tell you I had a wonderful time today. They opened the Boardman Building officially this afternoon. You know, down on Broadway, twenty-two floors and a gothic spire. Francone had indigestion, so I went there as his representative. I designed that building anyway, and... Oh, well, you know nothing about it. But I do, Peter. I've seen all your buildings. I have pictures of them. I cut them out of the papers. And I'm making a scrapbook, just like Uncle's. Oh, Peter, it's so wonderful. What? Uncle's scrapbooks and his letters. All this. She stretched her hands out over the papers on the floor 
as if she wanted to embrace them. Think of it, all these letters coming from all over the country, perfect strangers, and yet he means so much to them. And here I am, helping him, me, just nobody, and look what a responsibility I have. It's so touching and so big. What do they matter, all the little things that can happen to us, when this concerns a whole nation? Yeah? Did he tell you that? He told me nothing at all, but you can't live with him for years without getting some of that. That wonderful selflessness of his. He wanted to be angry, but he saw her twinkling smile, her new kind of fire, and he had to smile and answer. I'll say this, Katie, it's becoming to you. Becoming as hell. You know, you could look stunning if you learned something about clothes. One of these days I'll take you bodily and drag you down to a good dressmaker. I want you to meet Guy Francone someday. You'll like him. Oh? I thought you said once that I wouldn't. Did I say that? Well, I didn't really know him. He's a grand fellow. I want you to meet them all. You'd be... Hey, where are you going? She had noticed the watch on his wrist and was edging away from him. I... It's almost nine o'clock, Peter, and I've got to have this finished before Uncle Ellsworth gets home. He'll be back by eleven. He's making a speech at a labor meeting tonight. I can work while we're talking. Do you mind? I certainly do. To hell with your dear uncle's fans. Let him untangle it all himself. You stay just where you are. She sighed, but put her head on his shoulder obediently. You mustn't talk like that about Uncle Ellsworth. You don't understand him at all. Have you read his book? Yes, I've read his book, and it's grand, it's stupendous. But I've heard nothing but talk of his damn book everywhere I go, so do you mind if we change the subject? You still don't want to meet Uncle Ellsworth? Why? What makes you say that? I'd love to meet him. Oh. What's the matter? You said once that you didn't want to meet him through me. Did I? How do you always remember all the nonsense I happen to say? Peter, I don't want you to meet Uncle Ellsworth. Why not? I don't know. It's kind of silly of me, but now I just don't want you to. I don't know why. Well, forget it, then. I'll meet him when the time comes. Katie, listen, yesterday I was standing at the window in my room, and I thought of you, and I wanted so much to have you with me, I almost called you, only it was too late. I get so terribly lonely for you like that. I... She listened, her arms about his neck. And then he saw her looking suddenly past him, her mouth opened in consternation. She jumped up, dashed across the room, and crawled on her hands and knees to reach a lavender envelope lying under a desk. Now what on earth? he demanded angrily. It's a very important letter, she said, still kneeling, the envelope held tightly in her little fist. It's a very important letter, and there it was practically in the wastebasket. I might have swept it out without noticing. It's from a poor widow who has five children, and her eldest son wants to be an architect, and Uncle Ellsworth is going to arrange a scholarship for him. Well, said Keating, rising, I've had just about enough of this. Let's get out of here, Katie. Let's go for a walk. It's beautiful out tonight. You don't seem to belong to yourself in here. Oh, fine. Let's go for a walk. Outside there was a mist of snow, a dry, fine, weightless snow that hung still in the air, filling the narrow tanks of streets. They walked together, Catherine's arm pressed to his, their feet leaving long brown smears on the white sidewalks. They sat down on a bench in Washington Square. The snow enclosed the square, cutting them off from the houses, from the city beyond. Through the shadow of the arch, 
little dots of light rolled past them, steel-white, green, and smeared red. She sat huddled close to him. He looked at the city. He had always been afraid of it, and he was afraid of it now. But he had two fragile protections, the snow and the girl beside him. Katie, he whispered. Katie, I love you, Peter. Katie, he said, without hesitation, without emphasis, because the certainty of his words allowed no excitement. We're engaged, aren't we? He saw her chin move faintly as it dropped and rose to form one word. Yes, she said calmly, so solemnly that the word sounded indifferent. She had never allowed herself to question the future, for a question would have been an admission of doubt. But she knew when she pronounced the yes that she had waited for this, and that she would shatter it if she were too happy. In a year or two, he said, holding her hand tightly, we'll be married. Just as soon as I'm on my feet and set with the firm for good. I have mother to take care of, but in another year it will be all right. He tried to speak as coldly, as practically as he could, not to spoil the wonder of what he felt. I'll wait, Peter, she whispered. We don't have to hurry. We won't tell anyone, Katie. It's our secret. Just ours, until... And suddenly a thought came to him, and he realized, aghast, that he could not prove it had never occurred to him before. Yet he knew in complete honesty, even though it did astonish him, that he had never thought of this before. He pushed her aside. He said angrily, Katie, you won't think that it's because of that great damnable uncle of yours? She laughed. The sound was light and unconcerned, and he knew that he was vindicated. Lord, no, Peter. He won't like it, of course, but what do we care? He won't like it? Why? Oh, I don't think he approves of marriage. Not that he preaches anything immoral, but he's always told me marriage is old-fashioned, an economic device to perpetuate the institution of private property or something like that, and anyway that he doesn't like it. Well, that's wonderful. We'll show him. In all sincerity, he was glad of it. It removed, not from his mind, which he knew to be innocent, but from all other minds where it could occur, the suspicion that there had been in his feeling for her any hint of such considerations as applied to... to Francone's daughter, for instance. He thought it was strange that this should seem so important, that he should wish so desperately to keep his feeling for her free from ties to all other people. He let his head fall back. He felt the bite of snowflakes on his lips. Then he turned and kissed her. The touch of her mouth was soft and cold with the snow. Her hat had slipped to one side, her lips were half open, her eyes round, helpless, her lashes glistening. He held her hand, palm up, and looked at it. She wore a black woolen glove, and her fingers were spread out clumsily like a child's. He saw beads of melted snow in the fuzz of the glove. They sparkled radiantly once in the light of a car flashing past. Chapter 7 The bulletin of the Architects Guild of America carried in its miscellaneous department a short item announcing Henry Cameron's retirement. Six lines summarized his achievements in architecture and misspelled the names of his two best buildings. 
Peter Keating walked into Francone's office and interrupted Francone's well-bred bargaining with an antique dealer over a snuff-box that had belonged to Madame Pompadour. Francone was precipitated into paying $9.25 more than he had intended to pay. He turned to Keating testily after the dealer had left and asked, Well, what is it, Peter, what is it? Keating threw the bulletin down on Francone's desk, his thumbnail underscoring the paragraph about Cameron. I've got to have that man, said Keating. What man? Howard Rourke. Who the hell, asked Francone, is Howard Rourke. I've told you about him. Cameron's designer. Oh. Oh, yes, I believe you did. Well, go and get him. Do you give me a free hand on how I hire him? What the hell? What is there about hiring another draftsman? Incidentally, did you have to interrupt me for that? He might be difficult, and I want to get to him before he decides on anyone else. Really? He's going to be difficult about it, is he? Do you intend to beg him to come here after Cameron's? Which is not great recommendation for a young man, anyway. Come on, Guy. Isn't it? Oh, well. Well, speaking structurally, not aesthetically, Cameron does give them a thorough grounding, and, of course, Cameron was pretty important in his day. As a matter of fact, I was one of his best draftsmen myself once, long ago. There's something to be said for old Cameron when you need that sort of thing. Go ahead. Get your Rourke if you think you need him. It's not that I really need him, but he's an old friend of mine and out of a job, and I thought it would be a nice thing to do for him. Well, do anything you wish, only don't bother me about it. Say, Peter, don't you think this is as lovely a snuff-box as you've ever seen? That evening, Keating climbed unannounced to Rourke's room and knocked nervously and entered cheerfully. He found Rourke sitting on the window sill, smoking. Just passing by, said Keating, with an evening to kill, and happened to think that that's where you live, Howard, and thought I'd drop in to say hello. Haven't seen you for such a long time. I know what you want, said Rourke. All right. How much? What do you mean, Howard? You know what I mean. Sixty-five a week, Keating blurted out. This was not the elaborate approach he had prepared, but he had not expected to find that no approach would be necessary. Sixty-five to start with. If you think it's not enough, I could maybe. Sixty-five will do. You... you'll come with us, Howard? When do you want me to start? Why, as soon as you can. Monday? All right. Thanks, Howard. On one condition, said Rourke. I'm not going to do any designing. Not any. No details. No Louis XV skyscrapers. Just keep me off aesthetics if you want to keep me at all. Put me in the engineering department. Send me on inspections out in the field. Now, do you still want me? Certainly, anything you say. You'll like the place. Just wait and see. You'll like Frank Cohn. He's one of Cameron's men himself. He shouldn't boast about it. Well, no, don't worry. I won't say it to his face. I won't say anything to anyone. Is that what you wanted to know? Why, no, I wasn't worried. I wasn't even thinking of that. And it's settled. Good night. See you Monday. Well... Yes. But I'm in no special hurry. Really, I came to see you, and... What's the matter, Peter? Something bothering you? No. I... You want to know why I'm doing it? Rourke smiled, without resentment or interest. Is that it? I'll tell you if you want to know. I don't give a damn where I work next. There's no architect in town that I'd want to work for. 
but I have to work somewhere, so it might as well be your Frank Cohn, if I can get what I want from you. I'm selling myself, and I'll play the game that way, for the time being. Really, Howard, you don't have to look at it like that. There's no limit to how far you can go with us once you get used to it. You'll see for a change what a real office looks like. And Cameron's dump. We'll shut up about that, Peter, and we'll do it damn fast. I didn't mean to criticize, or... I didn't mean anything. He did not know what to say, nor what he should feel. It was a victory, but it seemed hollow. Still, it was a victory, and he felt that he wanted to feel affection for Rourke. Howard, let's go out and have a drink. Just sort of to celebrate the occasion. Sorry, Peter. That's not part of the job. Keating had come here prepared to exercise caution and tact to the limit of his ability. He had achieved a purpose he had not expected to achieve. He knew he should take no chances, say nothing else, and leave. But something inexplicable, beyond all practical considerations, was pushing him on. He said unheedingly, Can't you be human for once in your life? What? Human, simple, natural. But I am. Can't you ever relax? Rourke smiled. Because he was sitting on the window sill, leaning sloppily against the wall, his long legs hanging loosely, the cigarette held without pressure between limp fingers. That's not what I mean, said Keating. Why can't you go out for a drink with me? What for? Do you always have to have a purpose? Do you always have to be so damn serious? Can't you ever do things without reason? Just like everybody else? You're so serious, so old. Everything's important with you. Everything's great, significant in some way. Every minute, even when you keep still. Can't you ever be comfortable and unimportant? No. Don't you get tired of the heroic? What's heroic about me? Nothing. Everything. I don't know. It's not what you do. It's what you make people feel around you. What? The unnormal, the strain. When I'm with you, it's always like a choice between you and the rest of the world. I don't want that kind of a choice. I don't want to be an outsider. I want to belong. There's so much in the world that's simple and pleasant. It's not all fighting and renunciation. It is with you. What have I ever renounced? Oh, you'll never renounce anything. You'd walk over corpses for what you want. But it's what you've renounced by never wanting it. That's because you can't want both. Both what? Look, Peter, I've never told you any of those things about me. What makes you see them? I've never asked you to make a choice between me and anything else. What makes you feel that there is a choice involved? What makes you uncomfortable when you feel that, since you're so sure I'm wrong? I... I don't know, he added. I don't know what you're talking about. And then he asked suddenly, Howard, why do you hate me? I don't hate you. Well, that's it. Why don't you hate me, at least? Why should I? Just to give me something? I know you can't like me. You can't like anybody. So it would be kinder to acknowledge people's existence by hating them? I'm not kind, Peter. And as Keating found nothing to say, Rourke added, Go home, Peter. You got what you wanted? Let it go with that. See you Monday.
Rourke stood at a table in the drafting room of Francon and Hire, a pencil in his hand, a strand of orange hair hanging down over his face, the prescribed pearl-gray smock, like a prison uniform on his body. He had learned to accept his new job. The lines he drew were to be the clean lines of steel beams, and he tried not to think of what these beams would carry. It was difficult at times. Between him and the plan of the building on which he was working stood the plan of that building as it should have been. He saw what he could make of it, how to change the lines he drew, where to lead them in order to achieve a thing of splendor. He had to choke the knowledge. He had to kill the vision. He had to obey and draw the lines as instructed. It hurt him so much that he shrugged at himself in cold anger. He thought, difficult? Well, learn it. But the pain remained. And a helpless wonder. The thing he saw was so much more real than the reality of paper, office, and commission. He could not understand what made others blind to it, and what made their indifference possible. He looked at the paper before him. He wondered why ineptitude should exist and have its say. He had never known that, and the reality which permitted it could never become quite real to him. But he knew that this would not last. He had to wait. It was his only assignment, to wait. What he felt didn't matter. It had to be done. He had to wait. Mr. Rourke, are you ready with the steel cage for the Gothic Lantern for the American Radio Corporation building? He had no friends in the drafting room. He was there like a piece of furniture, as useful, as impersonal, and as silent. Only the chief of the engineering department, to which Rourke was assigned, had said to Keating after the first two weeks, You've got more sense than I gave you credit for, Keating. Thanks. For what? asked Keating. For nothing that was intentional, I'm sure, said the chief. Once in a while Keating stopped by Rourke's table to say softly, Will you drop in at my office when you're through tonight, Howard? Nothing important. When Rourke came, Keating began by saying, Well, how do you like it here, Howard? If there's anything you want, just say so, and I'll... Rourke interrupted to ask, Where is it this time? Keating produced sketches from a drawer and said, I know it's perfectly right, just as it is, but what do you think of it, generally speaking? Rourke looked at the sketches, and even though he wanted to throw them at Keating's face and resign, one thought stopped him. The thought that it was a building, and that he had to save it, as others could not pass a drowning man without leaping in to the rescue. Then he worked for hours, sometimes all night, while Keating sat and watched. He forgot Keating's presence. He saw only a building and his chance to shape it. He knew that the shape would be changed, torn, distorted. Still some order and reason would remain in its plan. It would be a better building than it would have been if he refused. Sometimes, looking at the sketch of a structure simpler, cleaner, more honest than the others, Rourke would say, That's not so bad, Peter. You're improving. And Keating would feel an odd little jolt inside, something quiet, private, and precious, such as he never felt from the compliments of Guy Francon, of his clients, of all others. Then he would forget it and feel much more substantially pleased when a wealthy lady murmured over a teacup, You're the coming architect of America, Mr. Keating, though she had never seen his buildings. He found compensations for his submission to Rourke. He would enter the drafting room in the morning, throw a tracing boy's assignment down on Rourke's table, and say, Howard, do this up for me, will you? 
and make it fast. In the middle of the day, he would send a boy to Rourke's table to say loudly, Mr. Keating wishes to see you in his office at once. He would come out of the office and walk in Rourke's direction and say to the room at large, Where the hell are those 12th Street plumbing specifications? Oh, Howard, will you look through the files and dig them up for me? At first he was afraid of Rourke's reaction. When he saw no reaction, only a silent obedience, he could restrain himself no longer. He felt a sensual pleasure in giving orders to Rourke, and he felt also a fury of resentment at Rourke's passive compliance. He continued, knowing that he could continue only so long as Rourke exhibited no anger, yet wishing desperately to break him down to an explosion. No explosion came. Rourke liked the days when he was sent out to inspect buildings and construction. He walked through the steel hulks of buildings more naturally than on pavements. The workers observed with curiosity that he walked on narrow planks, on naked beams hanging over empty space, as easily as the best of them. It was a day in March, and the sky was a faint green with the first hint of spring. In Central Park, five hundred feet below, the earth caught the tone of the sky in a shade of brown that promised to become green and the lakes lay like splinters of glass under the cobwebs of bare branches. Rourke walked through the shell of what was to be a gigantic apartment hotel and stopped before an electrician at work. The man was toiling assiduously, bending conduits around a beam. It was a task for hours of strain and patience, in a space overfilled against all calculations. Rourke stood, his hands in his pockets, watching the man's slow, painful progress. The man raised his head and turned to him abruptly. He had a big head and a face so ugly that it became fascinating. It was neither old nor flabby, but it was creased in deep gashes, and the powerful jowls dropped like a bulldog's. The eyes were startling, wide, round, and china blue. Well, the man asked angrily, What's the matter, Bricktop? You're wasting your time, said Rourke. Yeah? Yeah. You don't say. It will take you hours to get your pipes around that beam. Know a better way to do it? Sure. Run along, punk. We don't like college smarties around here. Cut a hole in that beam and put your pipes through. What? Cut a hole through the beam. The hell I will. The hell you won't. It ain't done that way. I've done it. You? It's done everywhere. It ain't gonna be done here. Not by me. Then I'll do it for you. The man roared. That's rich. When did office boys learn to do a man's work? Give me your torch. Look out, boy. It'll burn your pretty pink toes. Rourke took the man's gloves and goggles, took the acetylene torch, knelt, and sent a thin jet of blue fire at the center of the beam. The man stood watching him. Rourke's arm was steady, holding the tense, hissing streak of flame in leash, shuddering faintly with its violence, but holding it aimed straight. There was no strain, no effort in the easy posture of his body, only in his arm, and it seemed as if the blue tension eating slowly through metal came not from the flame, but from the hand holding it. He finished, put the torch down, and rose. Jesus, said the electrician, do you know how to handle a torch? Looks like it, doesn't it? He removed the gloves, the goggles, and handed them back. Do it that way from now on. Tell the foreman I said so. 
The electrician was staring reverently at the neat hole cut through the beam. He muttered, Where did you learn to handle it like that, Red? Rourke's slow, amused smile acknowledged this concession of victory. Oh, I've been an electrician, and a plumber, and a rivet catcher, and many other things. And went to school besides? Well, in a way. Going to be an architect? Yes. Well, you'll be the first one that knows something besides pretty pictures and tea parties. You should see the teacher's pets they send us down from the office. If you're apologizing, don't. I don't like them either. Go back to the pipes. So long. So long, Red. The next time Rourke appeared on that job, the blue-eyed electrician waved to him from afar and called him over, and asked advice about his work, which he did not need. He stated that his name was Mike, and that he had missed Rourke for several days. On the next visit, the day shift was leaving, and Mike waited outside for Rourke to finish the inspection. How about a glass of beer, Red? he invited, when Rourke came out. Sure, said Rourke. Thanks. They sat together at a table in the corner of a basement speakeasy, and they drank beer, and Mike related his favorite tale of how he had fallen five stories when a scaffolding gave way under him, how he had broken three ribs but lived to tell it. And Rourke spoke of his days in the building trades. Mike did have a real name, which was Sean Xavier Donegan, but everyone had forgotten it long ago. He owned a set of tools and an ancient Ford, and existed for the sole purpose of traveling around the country from one big construction job to another. People meant very little to Mike, but their performance a great deal. He worshipped expertness of any kind. He loved his work passionately, and had no tolerance for anything save for other single-track devotions. He was a master in his own field, and he felt no sympathy except for mastery. His view of the world was simple. There were the able, and there were the incompetent. He was not concerned with the latter. He loved buildings. He despised, however, all architects. There was one, Red, he said earnestly over his fifth beer. One only, and you'd be too young to know about him, but that was the only man that knew building. I worked for him when I was your age. Who was that? Henry Cameron was his name. He's dead, I guess, these many years. Rourke looked at him for a long time, then said, He's not dead, Mike and added, I've worked for him. You did? For almost three years. They looked at each other silently, and that was the final seal on their friendship. Weeks later, Mike stopped Rourke one day at the building, his ugly face puzzled, and asked, Say, Red, I heard the super tell a guy from the contractors that you're stuck up and stubborn and the lousiest bastard he's ever been up against. What did you do to him? Nothing. What the hell did he mean? I don't know, said Rourke. Do you? Mike looked at him, shrugged, and grinned. No, said Mike. Chapter 8 Early in May, Peter Keating departed for Washington to supervise the construction of a museum donated to the city by a great philanthropist easing his conscience. The museum building, Keating pointed out proudly, was to be decidedly different. It was not a reproduction of the Parthenon, but of the Maison Carrée at Nîmes. 
Keating had been away for some time when an office boy approached Rourke's table and informed him that Mr. Francone wished to see him in his office. When Rourke entered the sanctuary, Francone smiled from behind the desk and said cheerfully, Sit down, my friend, sit down. But something in Rourke's eyes, which he had never seen at close range before, made Francone's voice shrink and stop. And he added dryly, Sit down. Rourke obeyed. Francone studied him for a second, but could reach no conclusion beyond deciding that the man had a most unpleasant face, yet looked quite correctly attentive. You're the one who's worked for Cameron, aren't you? Francone asked. Yes, said Rourke. Mr. Keating has been telling me very nice things about you. Francone tried pleasantly and stopped. It was wasted courtesy. Rourke just sat looking at him, waiting. Listen, what's your name? Rourke. Listen, Rourke. We have a client who is a little odd, but he's an important man, a very important man, and we have to satisfy him. He's given us a commission for an eight million dollar office building, but the trouble is that he has very definite ideas on what he wants it to look like. He wants it, Francone shrugged apologetically, disclaiming all blame for the preposterous suggestion. He wants it to look like this. He handed Rourke a photograph. It was a photograph of the Dana building. Rourke sat quite still, the photograph hanging between his fingers. Do you know that building? asked Francone. Yes. Well, that's what he wants. And Mr. Keating's away. I've had Bennett and Cooper and Williams make sketches, but he's turned them down. So I thought I'd give you a chance. Francone looked at him, impressed by the magnanimity of his own offer. There was no reaction. There was only a man who still looked as if he'd been struck on the head. Of course, said Francone. It's quite a jump for you, quite an assignment, but I thought I'd let you try. Don't be afraid. Mr. Keating and I will go over it afterward. Just draw up the plans and a good sketch of it. You must have an idea of what the man wants. You know Cameron's tricks. But, of course, we can't let a crude thing like this come out of our office. We must please him, but we must also preserve our reputation and not frighten all our other clients away. The point is to make it simple and in the general mood of this, but also artistic. You know, the more severe kind of Greek. You don't have to use the Ionic order. Use the Doric, plain pediments and simple mouldings or something like that. Get the idea? Now take this along and show me what you can do. Bennett will give you all the particulars, and... What's the matter? Francone's voice cut itself off. Mr. Francone, please let me design it the way the Dana building was designed. Huh? Let me do it. Not copy the Dana building but design it as Henry Cameron would have wanted it done, as I will. You mean modernistic? I'm... Well, call it that. Are you crazy? Mr. Francon, please listen to me. Rourke's words were like the steps of a man walking a tight wire, slow, strained, groping for the only right spot, quivering over an abyss, but precise, I don't blame you for the things you're doing. I'm working for you. I'm taking your money. I have no right to express objections. But this time, this time the client is asking for it. You're risking nothing. He wants it. Think of it. There's a man, one man who sees and understands and wants it and has the power to build it. 
Are you going to fight a client for the first time in your life? And fight for what? To cheat him and to give him the same old trash when you have so many others asking for it? And one, only one, who comes with a request like this. Aren't you forgetting yourself? asked Francone coldly. What difference would it make to you? Just let me do it my way and show it to him. Only show it to him. He's already turned down three sketches. What if he turns down a fourth? But if he doesn't, if he doesn't. Rourke had never known how to entreat, and he was not doing it well. His voice was hard, toneless, revealing the effort, so that the plea became an insult to the man who was making him plead. Keating would have given a great deal to see Rourke in that moment, but Francon could not appreciate the triumph he was the first ever to achieve. He recognized only the insult. Am I correct in gathering, Francone asked, that you are criticizing me and teaching me something about architecture? I'm begging you, said Rourke, closing his eyes. If you weren't a protégé of Mr. Keating's, I wouldn't bother to discuss the matter with you any further. But since you are quite obviously naive and inexperienced, I shall point out to you that I am not in the habit of asking for the aesthetic opinions of my draftsmen. You will kindly take this photograph and I do not wish any building as Cameron might have designed it. I wish the scheme of this adapted to our sight, and you will follow my instructions as to the classic treatment of the façade. I can't do it, said Rourke very quietly. What? Are you speaking to me? Are you actually saying, sorry, I can't do it? I haven't said sorry, Mr. Francone. What did you say? that I can't do it. Why? You don't want to know why. Don't ask me to do any designing. I'll do any other kind of job you wish, but not that. And not to Cameron's work. What do you mean, no designing? You expect to be an architect someday? Or do you? Not like this. Oh, I see. So you can't do it. You mean you won't? If you prefer... Listen, you impertinent fool, this is incredible. Rourke got up. May I go, Mr. Francone? In all my life, roared Francone, in all my experience I've never seen anything like it. Are you here to tell me what you'll do and what you won't do? Are you here to give me lessons and criticize my taste and pass judgment? I'm not criticizing anything, said Rourke quietly. I'm not passing judgment. There are some things that I can't do. Let it go at that. May I leave now? You may leave this room and this firm now and from now on. You may go straight to the devil. Go and find yourself another employer. Try and find him. Go get your check and get out. Yes, Mr. Francon. That evening Rourke walked to the basement speakeasy, where he could always find Mike after the day's work. Mike was now employed on the construction of a factory by the same contractor who was awarded most of Francon's biggest jobs. Mike had expected to see Rourke on an inspection visit to the factory that afternoon, and greeted him angrily. What's the matter, Red, lying down on the job? When he heard the news, Mike sat still and looked like a bulldog baring its teeth. Then he swore savagely. The bastards, he gulped between stronger names. The bastards! Keep still, Mike. Well, what now, Red? Someone else of the same kind, until the same thing happens again.
when Keating returned from Washington, he went straight up to Francone's office. He had not stopped in the drafting room and had heard no news. Francone greeted him expansively. Boy, it's great to see you back. What'll you have, a whiskey and soda or a little brandy? No, thanks. Just give me a cigarette. Here. Boy, you look fine, better than ever. How do you do it, you lucky bastard? I have so many things to tell you. How did it go down in Washington? Everything all right? And before Keating could answer, Francone rushed on. Something dreadful's happened to me, most disappointing. Do you remember Lily Landau? I thought I was all set with her, but last time I saw her, did I get the cold shoulder? Do you know who's got her? You'll be surprised. Gail Winant, no less. The girl's flying high. You should see her pictures and her legs all over his newspapers. Will it help her show, or won't it? What can I offer against that? And do you know what he's done? Remember how she always said that nobody could give her what she wanted most? Her childhood home? The dear little Austrian village where she was born? Well, Winant bought it long ago, the whole damn village, and had it shipped here, every bit of it, and had it assembled again down on the Hudson, and there it stands now, cobbles, church, apple trees, pigsties, and all. Then he springs it on Lily two weeks ago. Wouldn't you just know it? If the king of Babylon could get hanging gardens for his homesick lady, why not Gail Winant? Lily's all smiles and gratitude, but the poor girl was really miserable. She'd have much preferred a mink coat. She never wanted the damn village. And Winant knew it, too. But there it stands on the Hudson. Last week he gave a party for her right there in that village, a costume party, with Mr. Winant dressed as Cesare Borgia. Wouldn't he, though? And what a party, if you can believe what you hear. But you know how it is, you can never prove anything on Winant. Then what does he do the next day but pose up there himself with little school children who'd never seen an Austrian village, the philanthropist, and plasters the photos all over his papers with plenty of sob stuff about educational values and gets mush notes from women's clubs. I'd like to know what he'll do with the village when he gets rid of Lily. He will, you know, and they never last long with him. Do you think I'll have a chance with her then? Sure, said Keating. Sure you will. How's everything here in the office? Oh, fine, same as usual. Lucius had a cold and drank up all of my best baz ammoniac. It's bad for his heart and a hundred dollars a case. Besides, Lucius got himself caught in a nasty little mess. It's that phobia of his, his damn porcelain. Seems he went and bought a teapot from a fence. He knew it was stolen goods, too. Took me quite a bit of bother to save us from a scandal. Oh, by the way, I fired that friend of yours. What's his name? Rourke. Oh, said Keating, and let a moment pass. Then asked, Why? The insolent bastard. Where did you ever pick him up? What happened? I thought I'd be nice to him, give him a real break. I asked him to make a sketch for the Feral Building. You know the one Brent finally managed to design and we got Farrell to accept. You know the simplified Doric. And your friend just up and refused to do it. It seems he has ideals or something. So I showed him the gate. What's the matter? What are you smiling at? Nothing. I can just see it. Now don't you ask me to take him back. No, of course not. For several days Keating thought that he should call on Rourke. He did not know what he would say, but felt dimly that he should say something. He kept postponing it. He was gaining assurance in his work. He felt that he did not need Rourke after all. The days went by, and he did not call on Rourke, and he felt relief in being free to forget him. Beyond the windows of his room, Rourke saw the roofs, the water tanks, the chimneys, the cars speeding far below. There was a threat in the silence of his room, 
in the empty days, in his hands hanging idly by his sides. And he felt another threat rising from the city below, as if each window, each strip of pavement, had set itself closed grimly in wordless resistance. It did not disturb him. He had known and accepted it long ago. He made a list of the architects whose work he resented least. In the order of their lesser evil, and he set out upon a search for a job, coldly, systematically, without anger or hope. He never knew whether these days hurt him. He knew only that it was a thing which had to be done. The architects he saw differed from one another. Some looked at him across the desk, kindly and vaguely, and their manner seemed to say that it was touching his ambition to be an architect, touching and laudable and strange and attractively sad as all the delusions of youth. Some smiled at him with thin, drawn lips and seemed to enjoy his presence in the room because it made them conscious of their own accomplishment. Some spoke coldly, as if his ambition were a personal insult. Some were brusque, and the sharpness of their voices seemed to say that they needed good draftsmen, they always needed good draftsmen, but this qualification could not possibly apply to him, and would he please refrain from being rude enough to force them to express it more plainly? It was not malice. It was not a judgment passed upon his merit. They did not think he was worthless. They simply did not care to find out whether he was good. Sometimes he was asked to show his sketches. He extended them across a desk, feeling a contraction of shame in the muscles of his hand. It was like having the clothes torn off his body. And the shame was not that his body was exposed, but that it was exposed to indifferent eyes. Once in a while he made a trip to New Jersey to see Cameron. They sat together on the porch of a house on a hill, Cameron in a wheelchair, his hands on an old blanket spread over his knees. How is it, Howard? Pretty hard? No. Want me to give you a letter to one of the bastards? No. Then Cameron would not speak of it any more. He did not want to speak of it. He did not want the thought of Rourke rejected by their city to become real. When Rourke came to him, Cameron spoke of architecture with the simple confidence of a private possession. They sat together, looking at the city in the distance, on the edge of the sky, beyond the river. The sky was growing dark and luminous as blue-green glass. The buildings looked like clouds condensed on the glass, gray-blue clouds frozen for an instant in straight angles and vertical shafts, with the sunset caught in the spires. As the summer months passed, as his list was exhausted and he returned again to the places that had refused him once, Rourke found that a few things were known about him, and he heard the same words, spoken bluntly or timidly or angrily or apologetically. You were kicked out of Stanton. You were kicked out of Francon's office. All the different voices saying it had one note in common, a note of relief in the certainty that the decision had been made for them. He sat on the windowsill in the evening, smoking, his hands spread on the pane, the city under his fingers, the glass cold against his skin. In September, he read an article entitled Make Way for Tomorrow by Gordon L. Prescott, A.G.A., in the Architectural Tribune. The article stated that the tragedy of the profession was the hardships placed in the way of its talented beginners, that great gifts had been lost in the struggle unnoticed, that architecture was perishing from a lack of new blood and new thought, a lack of originality, vision, and courage, that the author of the article made it his aim to search for promising beginners 
to encourage them, develop them, and give them the chance they deserved. Rourke had never heard of Gordon L. Prescott, but there was a tone of honest conviction in the article. He allowed himself to start for Prescott's office with the first hint of hope. The reception room of Gordon L. Prescott's office was done in gray, black, and scarlet. It was correct, restrained, and daring all at once. A young and very pretty secretary informed Rourke that one could not see Mr. Prescott without an appointment, but that she would be very glad to make an appointment for next Wednesday at 2.15. On Wednesday at 2.15, the secretary smiled at Rourke and asked him, please to be seated for just a moment. At 4.45, he was admitted into Gordon L. Prescott's office. Gordon L. Prescott wore a brown checkered tweed jacket and a white turtleneck sweater of Angora wool. He was tall, athletic, and thirty-five, but his face combined a crisp air of sophisticated wisdom with the soft skin, the button nose, the small puffed mouth of a college hero. His face was sun-scorched, his blond hair clipped short in a military Prussian haircut. He was frankly masculine, frankly unconcerned about elegance, and frankly conscious of the effect. He listened to Rourke silently, and his eyes were like a stopwatch, registering each separate second consumed by each separate word of Rourke's. He let the first sentence go by. On the second, he interrupted to say curtly, Let me see your drawings, as if to make it clear that anything Rourke might say was quite well known to him already. He held the drawings in his bronzed hands. Before he looked down at them, he said, Ah, yes, so many young men come to me for advice, so many. He glanced at the first sketch, but raised his head before he had seen it. Of course, it's the combination of the practical and the transcendental that is so hard for beginners to grasp. He slipped the sketch to the bottom of the pile. Architecture is primarily a utilitarian conception, and the problem is to elevate the principle of pragmatism into the realm of aesthetic abstraction. All else is nonsense. He glanced at two sketches and slipped them to the bottom. I have no patience with visionaries who see a holy crusade in architecture for architecture's sake. The great dynamic principle is the common principle of the human equation. He glanced at a sketch and slipped it under. The public taste and the public heart are the final criteria of the artist. The genius is the one who knows how to express the general. The exception is to tap the unexceptional. He weighed the pile of sketches in his hand, noted that he had gone through half of them, and dropped them down on the desk. Ah, yes, he said. Your work. Very interesting. But not practical, not mature, unfocused and undisciplined. Adolescent. Originality for originality's sake, not at all in the spirit of the present day. If you want an idea of the sort of thing for which there is a crying need, here, let me show you. He took a sketch out of a drawer of the desk. Here's a young man who came to me totally unrecommended, a beginner who had never worked before. When you can produce stuff like this, you won't find it necessary to look for a job. I saw this one sketch of his, and I took him on at once. Started him at twenty-five a week, too. There's no question but that he is a potential genius. He extended the sketch to Rourke. The sketch represented a house in the shape of a grain silo, incredibly merged with the simplified, emaciated shadow of the Parthenon. That, said Gordon L. Prescott, is originality, the new in the eternal. Try towards something like this. I can't really say that I predict a great deal for your future. We must be frank. I wouldn't want to give you illusions based on my authority. You have a great deal to learn. 
I couldn't venture a guess on what talent you might possess or develop later, but with hard work, perhaps. Architecture is a difficult profession, however, and the competition is stiff, you know, very stiff. And now, if you'll excuse me, my secretary has an appointment waiting for me. Rourke walked home late on an evening in October. It had been another of the many days that stretched into months behind him, and he could not tell what had taken place in the hours of that day, whom he had seen, what form the words of refusal had taken. He concentrated fiercely on the few minutes at hand when he was in an office, forgetting everything else. He forgot these minutes when he left the office. It had to be done. It had been done. It concerned him no longer. He was free once more on his way home. A long street stretched before him, its high banks coming close together ahead, so narrow that he felt as if he could spread his arms, seize the spires, and push them apart. He walked swiftly, the pavements as a springboard, throwing his steps forward. He saw a lighted triangle of concrete suspended somewhere hundreds of feet above the ground. He could not see what stood below, supporting it. He was free to think of what he'd want to see there, what he would have made to be seen. Then he thought suddenly that now, in this moment, according to the city, according to everyone save that hard certainty within him, he would never build again, never, before he had begun. He shrugged. Those things happening to him in those offices of strangers were only a kind of sub-reality, unsubstantial incidents in the path of a substance they could not reach or touch. He turned into side streets leading to the East River. A lonely traffic light hung far ahead a spot of red in a bleak darkness. The old houses crouched low to the ground, hunched under the weight of the sky. The street was empty and hollow, echoing to his footsteps. He went on, his collar raised, his hands in his pockets. His shadow rose from under his heels when he passed a light and brushed a wall in a long black arc, like the sweep of a windshield wiper. Chapter 9 John Eric Snight looked through Rourke's sketches, flipped three of them aside, gathered the rest into an even pile, glanced again at the three, tossed them down one after another on top of the pile with three sharp thuds, and said, Remarkable, radical, but remarkable. What are you doing tonight? Why? asked Rourke, stupefied. Are you free? Mind starting in at once? Take your coat off, go to the drafting room, borrow tools from somebody, and do me up a sketch for a department store we're remodeling. Just a quick sketch, just a general idea, but I must have it tomorrow. Mind staying late tonight? The heat's on and I'll have Joe send you up some dinner. Want black coffee or scotch or what? Just tell Joe. Can you stay? Yes, said Rourke incredulously. I can work all night. Fine, splendid. That's just what I've always needed, a Cameron man. I've got every other kind. Oh, yes, what did they pay you at Francon's? Sixty-five. Well, I can't splurge like Guy the Epicure. Fifties tops, okay? Fine, go right in. I'll have Billings explain about the store to you. I want something modern. Understand modern, violent, crazy, to knock their eye out. Don't restrain yourself. Go the limit. Pull any stunt you can think of. The goofier, the better. Come on. John Eric Snight shot to his feet, flung a door open into a huge drafting room, flew in, skidded against a table, stopped, and said to a stout man with a grim moon face, Billings, Rourke, he's our modernist. Give him the Benton store. Get him some instruments. Leave him your keys and show him what to lock up tonight. Start him as of this morning, fifty. What time was my appointment with Dolson Brothers? I'm late already. So long. I won't be back tonight. 
he skidded out, slamming the door. Billings evinced no surprise. He looked at Rourke as if Rourke had always been there. He spoke impassively in a weary drawl. Within twenty minutes he left Rourke at a drafting table with paper, pencils, instruments, a set of plans and photographs of the department store, a set of charts, and a long list of instructions. Rourke looked at the clean white sheet before him. His fist closed tightly about the thin stem of a pencil. He put the pencil down and picked it up again, his thumb running softly up and down the smooth shaft. He saw that the pencil was trembling. He put it down quickly, and he felt anger at himself for the weakness of allowing this job to mean so much to him, for the sudden knowledge of what the months of idleness behind him had really meant. His fingertips were pressed to the paper, as if the paper held them, as a surface charged with electricity will hold the flesh of a man who has brushed against it, hold and hurt. He tore his fingers off the paper. Then he went to work. John Eric Snipe was fifty years old. He wore an expression of quizzical amusement, shrewd and unwholesome, as if he shared with each man he contemplated a lewd secret which he would not mention because it was so obvious to them both. He was a prominent architect. His expression did not change when he spoke of this fact. He considered Guy Francon an impractical idealist. He was not restrained by any classic dogma. He was much more skillful and liberal. He built anything. He had no distaste for modern architecture, and built cheerfully when a rare client asked for it, bare boxes with flat roofs, which he called progressive. He built Roman mansions, which he called fastidious. He built Gothic churches, which he called spiritual. He saw no difference among any of them. He never became angry, except when somebody called him eclectic. He had a system of his own. He employed five designers of various types, and he staged a contest among them on each commission he received. He chose the winning design and improved it with bits of the four others. Six mines, he said, are better than one. When Rourke saw the final drawing of the Benton department store, he understood why Snyte had not been afraid to hire him. He recognized his own planes of space, his windows, his system of circulation. He saw, added to it, Corinthian capitals, Gothic vaulting, colonial chandeliers, and incredible moldings, vaguely Moorish. The drawing was done in watercolor with miraculous delicacy, mounted on cardboard, covered with a veil of tissue paper. The men in the drafting room were not allowed to look at it except from a safe distance. All hands had to be washed, all cigarettes discarded. John Eric Snyt attached a great importance to the proper appearance of a drawing for submission to clients, and kept a young Chinese student of architecture employed solely upon the execution of these masterpieces. Rourke knew what to expect of his job. He would never see his work erected, only pieces of it which he preferred not to see. But he would be free to design as he wished, and he would have the experience of solving actual problems. It was less than he wanted, and more than he could expect. He accepted it at that. He met his fellow designers, the four other contestants, and learned that they were unofficially nicknamed in the drafting room as Classic, Gothic, Renaissance, and Miscellaneous. He winced a little when he was addressed as, Hey, Modernistic! The strike of the building trades unions infuriated Guy Francon. The strike had started against the contractors who were erecting the Noise Belmont Hotel, and had spread to all the new structures of the city. It had been mentioned in the press that the architects of the Noyes Belmont were the firm of Francon and Hire. Most of the press helped the fight along, 
urging the contractors not to surrender. The loudest attacks against the strikers came from the powerful papers of the great Wynand chain. We have always stood, said the Wynand editorials, for the rights of the common man against the yellow sharks of privilege, but we cannot give our support to the destruction of law and order. It had never been discovered whether the Wynand papers led the public or the public led the Wynand papers. It was known only that the two kept remarkably in step. It was not known to anyone, however, save to Guy Francon and a very few others, that Gail Wynand owned the corporation which owned the corporation which owned the Noyes Belmont Hotel. This added greatly to Francon's discomfort. Gail Wynand's real estate operations were rumored to be vaster than his journalistic empire. It was the first chance Francon had ever had at a Wynand commission, and he grasped it avidly, thinking of the possibilities which it could open. He and Keating had put their best efforts into designing the most ornate of all Rococo palaces for future patrons who could pay $25 per day per room, and who were fond of plaster flowers, marble cupids, and open elevator cages of bronze lace. The strike had shattered the future possibilities. Francone could not be blamed for it, but one could never tell whom Gail Wynand would blame, and for what reason. The unpredictable, unaccountable shifts of Wynand's favor were famous, and it was well known that few architects he employed once were ever employed by him again. Francone's sullen mood led him to the unprecedented breach of snapping over nothing in particular at the one person who had always been immune from it, Peter Keating. Keating shrugged and turned his back to him in silent insolence. Then Keating wandered aimlessly through the halls, snarling at young draftsmen without provocation. He bumped into Lucius N. Heyer in a doorway and snapped, Look where you're going! Heyer stared after him, bewildered, blinking. There was little to do in the office, nothing to say, and everyone to avoid. Keating left early and walked home through a cold December twilight. At home, he cursed aloud the thick smell of paint from the overheated radiators. He cursed the chill when his mother opened a window. He could find no reason for his restlessness, unless it was the sudden inactivity that left him alone. He could not bear to be left alone. He snatched up the telephone receiver and called Catherine Halsey. The sound of her clear voice was like a hand pressed soothingly against his hot forehead. He said, Oh, nothing important, dear. I just wondered if you'd be home tonight. I thought I'd drop in after dinner. Of course, Peter. I'll be home. Swell. About 8.30? Yes. Oh, Peter, have you heard about Uncle Ellsworth? Yes, goddammit, I've heard about your Uncle Ellsworth. I'm sorry, Katie. Forgive me, darling. I didn't mean to be rude. But I've been hearing about your uncle all day long. I know it's wonderful and all that. Only, look, we're not going to talk about him again tonight. No, of course not. I'm sorry. I understand. I'll be waiting for you. So long, Katie. He had heard the latest story about Ellsworth Toohey, but he did not want to think of it because it brought him back to the annoying subject of the strike. Six months ago, on the wave of his success with Sermons in Stone, Ellsworth Toohey had been signed to write One Small Voice, a daily syndicated column for the Wynand papers. It appeared in the banner and had started as a department of art criticism, but grown into an informal tribune from which Ellsworth M. Toohey pronounced verdicts on art, literature, New York restaurants, international crises, and sociology. Mainly sociology. It had been a great success. But the building strike had placed Ellsworth M. Toohey in a difficult position. He made no secret of his sympathy with the strikers, but he had said nothing in his column, for no one could say what he pleased on the papers owned by Gail Wynand, save Gail Wynand. 
However, a mass meeting of strike sympathizers had been called for this evening. Many famous men were to speak, Ellsworth Toohey among them. At least Toohey's name had been announced. The event caused a great deal of curious speculation, and bets were made on whether Toohey would dare to appear. He will, Keating had heard a draftsman insist vehemently. He'll sacrifice himself, he's that kind. He's the only honest man in print. He won't, another had said. Do you realize what it means to pull a stunt like that on Wynand? Once Wynand gets it in for a man, he'll break the guy as sure as hell's fire. Nobody knows when he'll do it or how he'll do it, but he'll do it. And nobody will prove a thing on him. And you're done for once you get Wynand after you. Keating did not care about the issue one way or another, and the whole matter annoyed him. He ate his dinner that evening in grim silence, and when Mrs. Keating began with an, Oh, by the way... To lead the conversation in a direction he recognized, he snapped, You're not going to talk about Catherine. Keep still. Mrs. Keating said nothing further, and concentrated on forcing more food on his plate. He took a taxi to Greenwich Village. He hurried up the stairs. He jerked at the bell. He waited. There was no answer. He stood leaning against the wall, ringing for a long time. Catherine wouldn't be out when she knew he was coming. She couldn't be. He walked incredulously down the stairs, out to the street, and looked up at the windows of her apartment. The windows were dark. He stood looking up at the windows, as at a tremendous betrayal. Then came a sick feeling of loneliness, as if he were homeless in a great city. For the moment, he forgot his own address or its existence. Then he thought of the meeting, the great mass meeting where her uncle was publicly to make a martyr of himself tonight. That's where she went, he thought, the damn little fool. He said aloud, to hell with her. And he was walking rapidly in the direction of the meeting hall. There was one naked bulb of light over the square frame of the hall's entrance, a small blue-white lump glowing ominously, too cold and too bright. It leaped out of the dark street, lighting one thin trickle of rain from some ledge above, a glistening needle of glass, so thin and smooth, that Keating thought crazily of stories where men had been killed by being pierced with an icicle. A few curious loafers stood indifferently in the rain around the entrance, and a few policemen. The door was open. The dim lobby was crowded with people who could not get into the packed hall. They were listening to a loudspeaker installed there for the occasion. At the door, three vague shadows were handing out pamphlets to passers-by. One of the shadows was a consumptive, unshaved young man with a long, bare neck. The other was a trim youth with a fur collar on an expensive coat. The third was Catherine Halsey. She stood in the rain, slumped, her stomach jutting forward in weariness, her nose shiny, her eyes bright with excitement. Keating stopped, staring at her. Her hand shot toward him mechanically with a pamphlet. Then she raised her eyes and saw him. She smiled without astonishment and said happily, Why, Peter, how sweet of you to come here. Katie, he choked a little. Katie, what the hell? But I had to, Peter. Her voice had no trace of apology. You don't understand, but I... Get out of the rain, get inside. But I can't, I have to... Get out of the rain at least, you fool. He pushed her roughly through the door into a corner of the lobby. Peter, darling, you're not angry, are you? You see, it was like this. I didn't think Uncle would let me come here tonight. But at the last minute he said I could if I wanted to, and that I could help with the pamphlets. I knew you'd understand, and I left you a note on the living room table explaining, and you left me a note. 
Inside? Yes. Oh. Oh, dear me, I never thought of that. You couldn't get in, of course. How silly of me. But I was in such a rush. No, you're not going to be angry. You can't. Don't you see what this means to him? Don't you know what he's sacrificing by coming here? And I knew he would. I told them so, those people who said not a chance, it'll be the end of him. And it might be, but he doesn't care. That's what he's like. I'm frightened, and I'm terribly happy, because what he's done, it makes me believe in all human beings. But I'm frightened, because, you see, Wynand, well, keep still. I know it all. I'm sick of it. I don't want to hear about your uncle or Wynand or the damn strike. Let's get out of here. Oh, no, Peter, we can't. I want to hear him, and shut up over there, someone hissed at them from the crowd. We're missing it all, she whispered. That's Austin Heller speaking. Don't you want to hear Austin Heller? Keating looked up at the loudspeaker with a certain respect, which he felt for all famous names. He had not read much of Austin Heller, but he knew that Heller was the star columnist of The Chronicle, a brilliant independent newspaper, arch-enemy of the Wynand publications that Heller came from an old distinguished family and had graduated from Oxford, that he had started as a literary critic and ended by becoming a quiet fiend devoted to the destruction of all forms of compulsion, private or public, in heaven or on earth, that he had been cursed by preachers, bankers, club women and labor organizers, that he had better manners than the social elite whom he usually mocked and a tougher constitution than the laborers whom he usually defended that he could discuss the latest play on Broadway, medieval poetry, or international finance, that he never donated to charity, but spent more of his own money than he could afford on defending political prisoners anywhere. The voice coming from the loudspeaker was dry, precise, with the faint trace of a British accent. And we must consider, Austin Heller was saying unemotionally, that since, unfortunately, we are forced to live together, the most important thing for us to remember is that the only way in which we can have any law at all is to have as little of it as possible. I see no ethical standard by which to measure the whole unethical conception of the state, except in the amount of time, of thought, of money, of effort, and of obedience which a society extorts from its every member. Its value and its civilization are in inverse ratio to that extortion. There is no conceivable law by which a man can be forced to work on any terms except those he chooses to set. There is no conceivable law to prevent him from setting them, just as there is none to force his employer to accept them. The freedom to agree or disagree is the foundation of our kind of society, and the freedom to strike is a part of it. I am mentioning this as a reminder to a certain Petronius from Hell's Kitchen, an exquisite bastard who has been rather noisy lately about telling us that this strike represents a destruction of law and order. The loudspeaker coughed out a high, shrill sound of approval and a clatter of applause. There were gasps among the people in the lobby. Catherine grasped Keating's arm. Oh, Peter, she whispered. He means Wynand. Wynand was born in Hell's Kitchen. He can afford to say that, but Wynand will take it out on Uncle Ellsworth. Keating could not listen to the rest of Heller's speech, because his head was swimming in so violent an ache that the sound hurt his eyes, and he had to keep his eyelids shut tightly. He leaned against the wall. He opened his eyes with a jerk when he became aware of the peculiar silence around him. He had not noticed the end of Heller's speech. He saw the people in the lobby standing in tense, solemn expectation, and the blank rasping of the loudspeaker pulled every glance into its dark funnel. Then a voice came through the silence, loudly and slowly. Ladies and gentlemen, 
I have the great honor of presenting to you now Mr. Ellsworth, Moncton, Tui. Well, thought Keating, Bennett's won his six bits down at the office. There were a few seconds of silence. Then the thing which happened hit Keating on the back of the head. It was not a sound nor a blow. It was something that ripped time apart, that cut the moment from the normal one preceding it. He knew only the shock at first. A distinct, conscious second was gone before he realized what it was, and that it was applause. It was such a crash of applause that he waited for the loudspeaker to explode. It went on and on and on, pressing against the walls of the lobby, and he thought he could feel the walls buckling out to the street. The people around him were cheering. Catherine stood, her lips parted, and he felt certain that she was not breathing at all. It was a long time before silence came suddenly, as abrupt and shocking as the roar. The loudspeaker died, choking on a high note. Those in the lobby stood still. Then came the voice. My friends, it said simply and solemnly. My brothers, it added softly, involuntarily, both full of emotion and smiling apologetically at the emotion. I am more touched by this reception than I should allow myself to be. I hope I shall be forgiven for a trace of the vain child which is in all of us. But I realize, and in that spirit I accept it, that this tribute was paid not to my person, but to a principle which chance has granted me to represent in all humility tonight. It was not a voice. It was a miracle. It unrolled as a velvet banner. It spoke English words, but the resonant clarity of each syllable made it sound like a new language, spoken for the first time. It was the voice of a giant. Keating stood, his mouth open. He did not hear what the voice was saying. He heard the beauty of the sounds without meaning. He felt no need to know the meaning. He could accept anything. He would be led blindly anywhere. And so, my friends, the voice was saying, the lesson to be learned from our tragic struggle is the lesson of unity. We shall unite, or we shall be defeated. Our will, the will of the disinherited, the forgotten, the oppressed, shall weld us into a solid bulwark with a common faith and a common goal. This is the time for every man to renounce the thoughts of his petty little problems, of gain, of comfort, of self-gratification. This is the time to merge his self in a great current, in the rising tide which is approaching to sweep us all, willing or unwilling, into the future. History, my friends, does not ask questions or acquiesce. It is irrevocable, as the voice of the masses that determine it. Let us listen to the call. Let us organize, my brothers. Let us organize, let us organize, let us organize. Keating looked at Catherine. There was no Catherine. There was only a white face dissolving in the sounds of the loudspeaker. It was not that she heard her uncle. Keating could feel no jealousy of him. He wished he could. It was not affection. It was something cold and impersonal that left her empty, her will surrendered, and no human will holding hers, but a nameless thing in which she was being swallowed. Let's get out of here, he whispered. His voice was savage. He was afraid. She turned to him as if she were emerging from unconsciousness. He knew that she was trying to recognize him and everything he implied. She whispered, Yes. Let's get out. 
They walked through the streets, through the rain, without direction. It was cold, but they went on, to move, to feel the movement, to know the sensation of their own muscles moving. We're getting drenched, Keating said at last, as bluntly and naturally as he could. Their silence frightened him. It proved that they both knew the same thing, and that the thing had been real. Let's find some place where we can have a drink. Yes, said Catherine. Let's. It's so cold. Isn't it stupid of me? Now I've missed Uncle's speech, and I wanted so much to hear it. It was all right. She had mentioned it. She had mentioned it quite naturally, with a healthy amount of proper regret. The thing was gone. But I wanted to be with you, Peter. I want to be with you always. The thing gave a last jerk, not in the meaning of what she said, but in the reason that had prompted her to say it. And then it was gone, and Keating smiled. His fingers sought her bare wrist between her sleeve and glove, and her skin was warm against his. Many days later Keating heard the story that was being told all over town. It was said that on the day after the mass meeting, Gail Wynand had given Ellsworth Toohey a raisin salary. Toohey had been furious and had tried to refuse it. You cannot bribe me, Mr. Wynand, he had said. I'm not bribing you, Wynand had answered. Don't flatter yourself. When the strike was settled, interrupted construction went forward with a spurt throughout the city, and Keating found himself spending days and nights at work, with new commissions pouring into the office. Francone smiled happily at everybody and gave a small party for his staff to erase the memory of anything he might have said. The palatial residence of Mr. and Mrs. Dale Ainsworth on Riverside Drive, a pet project of Keating's, done in late Renaissance and grey granite, was completed at last. Mr. and Mrs. Dale Ainsworth gave a formal reception as a housewarming, to which Guy Francone and Peter Keating were invited, but Lucius and Hire was ignored, quite accidentally, as always happened to him of late. Francone enjoyed the reception, because every square foot of granite in the house reminded him of the stupendous payment received by a certain granite quarry in Connecticut. Keating enjoyed the reception, because the stately Mrs. Ainsworth said to him with a disarming smile, But I was certain that you were Mr. Francone's partner. It's Francone and Hire, of course. How perfectly careless of me. All I can offer by way of excuse is that if you aren't his partner, one would certainly say you were entitled to be. Life in the office rolled on smoothly, in one of those periods when everything seemed to go well. Keating was astonished, therefore, one morning, shortly after the Ainsworth reception, to see Francone arrive at the office with a countenance of nervous irritation. Oh, nothing, he waved his hand at Keating impatiently. Nothing at all. In the drafting room, Keating noticed three draftsmen, their heads close together, bent over a section of the New York banner reading with a guilty kind of avid interest. He heard an unpleasant chuckle from one of them. When they saw him, the paper disappeared, too quickly. He had no time to inquire into this. A contractor's job-runner was waiting for him in his office, also a stack of mail and drawings to be approved. He had forgotten the incident three hours later, in a rush of appointments. He felt light, clear-headed, exhilarated by his own energy. When he had to consult his library on a new drawing, which he wished to compare with its best prototypes, he walked out of his office whistling, swinging the drawing gaily. His motion had propelled him halfway across the reception room when he stopped short. The drawing swung forward and flapped back against his knees. He forgot that it was quite improper for him to pause there like that in the circumstances. 
a young woman stood before the railing, speaking to the reception clerk. Her slender body seemed out of all scale in relation to a normal human body. Its lines were so long, so fragile, so exaggerated, that she looked like a stylized drawing of a woman, and made the correct proportions of a normal being appear heavy and awkward beside her. She wore a plain gray suit. The contrast between its tailored severity and her appearance was deliberately exorbitant and strangely elegant. She let the fingertips of one hand rest on the railing, a narrow hand ending the straight, imperious line of her arm. She had gray eyes that were not ovals, but two long, rectangular cuts edged by parallel lines of lashes. She had an air of cold serenity and an exquisitely vicious mouth. Her face, her pale gold hair, her suit seemed to have no color, but only a hint, just on the verge of the reality of color, making the full reality seem vulgar. Keating stood still because he understood for the first time what it was that artists spoke about when they spoke of beauty. I'll see him now if I see him at all, she was saying to the reception clerk. He asked me to come, and this is the only time I have. It was not a command. She spoke as if it were not necessary for her voice to assume the tones of commanding. Yes, but... A light buzzed on the clerk's switchboard. She plugged the connection through hastily. Yes, Mr. Francone? She listened and nodded with relief. Yes, Mr. Francone. She turned to the visitor. Will you go right in, please? The young woman turned and looked at Keating as she passed him on her way to the stairs. Her eyes went past him without stopping. Something ebbed from his stunned admiration. He had had time to see her eyes. They seemed weary and a little contemptuous, but they left him with a sense of cold cruelty. He heard her walking up the stairs, and the feeling vanished, but the admiration remained. He approached the reception clerk eagerly. Who was that? he asked. The clerk shrugged. That's the boss's little girl. Why, the lucky stiff, said Keating. He's been holding out on me. You misunderstood me, the clerk said coldly. It's his daughter. It's Dominique Francon. Oh, said Keating. Oh, Lord. Yeah? The girl looked at him sarcastically. Have you read this morning's banner? No. Why? Read it. Her switchboard buzzed, and she turned away from him. He sent a boy for a copy of the banner and turned anxiously to the column Your House by Dominique Francon. He had heard that she'd been quite successful lately with descriptions of the homes of prominent New Yorkers. Her field was confined to home decoration, but she ventured occasionally into architectural criticism. Today her subject was the new residence of Mr. and Mrs. Dale Ainsworth on Riverside Drive. He read, among many other things, the following. You enter a magnificent lobby of golden marble and you think that this is the city hall or the main post office, but it isn't. It has, however, everything. The mezzanine with the colonnade and the stairway with a goiter and the cartouches in the form of looped leather belts. Only it's not leather, it's marble. The dining room has a splendid bronze gate placed by mistake on the ceiling in the shape of a trellis entwined with fresh bronze grapes. There are dead ducks and rabbits hanging on the wall panels in bouquets of carrots, petunias, and string beans. I do not think these would have been very attractive if real, but since they are bad plaster imitations, it is all right. The bedroom windows face a brick wall, not a very neat wall, but nobody needs to see the bedrooms. 
The front windows are large enough and admit plenty of light, as well as the feet of the marble cupids that roost on the outside. The cupids are well fed and present a pretty picture to the street against the severe granite of the facade. They are quite commendable, unless you just can't stand to look at dimpled soles every time you glance out to see whether it's raining. If you get tired of it, you can always look out of the central windows of the third floor and into the cast-iron rump of Mercury who sits on top of the pediment over the entrance. It's a very beautiful entrance. Tomorrow we shall visit the home of Mr. and Mrs. Smythe Pickering. Keating had designed the house, but he could not help chuckling through his fury when he thought of what Francone must have felt reading this, and of how Francone was going to face Mrs. Dale Ainsworth. Then he forgot the house and the article. He remembered only the girl who had written it. He picked three sketches at random from his table and started for Francone's office to ask his approval of the sketches, which he did not need. On the stair landing outside Francone's closed door, he stopped. He heard Francone's voice behind the door, loud, angry, and helpless. The voice he always heard when Francone was beaten. To expect such an outrage from my own daughter. I'm used to anything from you, but this beats it all. What am I going to do? How am I going to explain? Do you have any kind of a vague idea of my position? Then Keating heard her laughing. It was a sound so gay and so cold that he knew it was best not to go in. He knew he did not want to go in, because he was afraid again, as he had been when he'd seen her eyes. He turned and descended the stairs. When he had reached the floor below, he was thinking that he would meet her, that he would meet her soon, and that Francone would not be able to prevent it now. He thought of it eagerly, laughing in relief at the picture of Francone's daughter as he had imagined her for years, revising his vision of his future, even though he felt dimly that it would be better if he never met her again. Chapter 10 Ralston Holcomb had no visible neck, but his chin took care of that. His chin and jaws formed an unbroken arc resting on his chest. His cheeks were pink, soft to the touch, with the irresilient softness of age, like the skin of a peach that has been scalded. His rich white hair rose over his forehead and fell to his shoulders in the sweep of a medieval mane. It left dandruff on the back of his collar. He walked through the streets of New York wearing a broad-brimmed hat, a dark business suit, a pale green satin shirt, a vest of white brocade, a huge black bow emerging from under his chin, and he carried a staff, not a cane but a tall ebony staff surmounted by a bulb of solid gold. It was as if his huge body were resigned to the conventions of a prosaic civilization and to its drab garments. But the oval of his chest and stomach sallied forth, flying the colors of his inner soul. These things were permitted to him because he was a genius. He was also the president of the Architects Guild of America. Ralston Holcomb did not subscribe to the views of his colleagues in the organization, he was not a grubbing builder nor a businessman. He was, he stated firmly, a man of ideals. He denounced the deplorable state of American architecture and the unprincipled eclecticism of its practitioners. In any period of history, he declared, architects built in the spirit of their own time and did not pick designs from the past. We could be true to history only in heeding her law, which demanded that we plant the roots of our art firmly in the reality of our own life. He decried the stupidity of erecting buildings that were Greek, Gothic, or Romanesque. Let us, he begged, be modern and build in the style that belongs to our days. He had found that style. It was Renaissance. 
he stated his reasons clearly. Inasmuch, he pointed out, as nothing of great historical importance had happened in the world since the Renaissance, we should consider ourselves still living in that period, and all the outward forms of our existence should remain faithful to the examples of the great masters of the sixteenth century. He had no patience with the few who spoke of a modern architecture in terms quite different from his own. He ignored them. He stated only that men who wanted to break with all of the past were lazy ignoramuses, and that one could not put originality above beauty. His voice trembled reverently on that last word. He accepted nothing but stupendous commissions. He specialized in the eternal and the monumental. He built a great many memorials and capitals. He designed for international expositions. He built like a composer improvising under the spur of a mystic guidance. He had sudden inspirations. He would add an enormous dome to the flat roof of a finished structure, or encrust a long vault with gold-leaf mosaic, or rip off a facade of limestone to replace it with marble. His clients turned pale, stuttered, and paid. His imperial personality carried him to victory in any encounter with a client's thrift. Behind him stood the stern, unspoken, overwhelming assertion that he was an artist. His prestige was enormous. He came from a family listed in the social register. In his middle years, he had married a young lady whose family had not made the social register, but made piles of money instead, in a chewing-gum empire left to an only daughter. Ralston Holcomb was now sixty-five, to which he added a few years for the sake of his friend's compliments on his wonderful physique. Mrs. Ralston Holcomb was forty-two, from which she deducted considerably. Mrs. Ralston Holcomb maintained a salon that met informally every Sunday afternoon. Everybody who is anybody in architecture drops in on us, she told her friends. They'd better, she added. On a Sunday afternoon in March, Keating drove to the Holcomb Mansion, a reproduction of a Florentine palazzo, dutifully but a little reluctantly. He had been a frequent guest at these celebrated gatherings, and he was beginning to be bored, for he knew everybody he could expect to find there. He felt, however, that he had to attend this time, because the occasion was to be in honor of the completion of one more capital by Ralston Holcomb in some state or another. A substantial crowd was lost in the marble ballroom of the Holcombs, scattered in forlorn islets through an expanse intended for court receptions. The guests stood about, self-consciously informal, working at being brilliant. Steps rang against the marble with the echoing sound of a crypt. The flames of tall candles clashed desolately with the gray of the light from the street. The lights made the candles seem dimmer. The candles gave to the day outside a premonitory tinge of dusk. A scale model of the new state capitol stood displayed on a pedestal in the middle of the room, ablaze with tiny electric bulbs. Mrs. Ralston Holcomb presided over the tea table. Each guest accepted a fragile cup of transparent porcelain, took two delicate sips, and vanished in the direction of the bar. Two stately butlers went about collecting the abandoned cups. Mrs. Ralston Holcomb, as an enthusiastic girlfriend had described her, was petite but intellectual. Her diminutive stature was her secret sorrow, but she had learned to find compensations. She could talk, and did, of wearing dresses size ten, and of shopping in the junior departments. She wore high school garments and short socks in summer, displayed spindly legs with hard blue veins. She adored celebrities. That was her mission in life. She hunted them grimly, 
She faced them with wide-eyed admiration and spoke of her own insignificance, of her humility before achievement. She shrugged, tight-lipped and rancorous, whenever one of them did not seem to take sufficient account of her own views on life after death, the theory of relativity, Aztec architecture, birth control, and the movies. She had a great many poor friends and advertised the fact. If a friend happened to improve his financial position, she dropped him, feeling that he had committed an act of treason. She hated the wealthy in all sincerity. They shared her only badge of distinction. She considered architecture her private domain. She had been christened Constance, and found it awfully clever to be known as Kiki, a nickname she had forced on her friends when she was well past thirty. Keating had never felt comfortable in Mrs. Holcomb's presence, because she smiled at him too insistently, and commented on his remarks by winking and saying, Why, Peter, how naughty of you! when no such intention had been in his mind at all. He bowed over her hand, however, this afternoon as usual, and she smiled from behind the silver teapot. She wore a regal gown of emerald velvet and a magenta ribbon in her bobbed hair with a cute little bow in front. Her skin was tanned and dry, with enlarged pores showing on her nostrils. She handed a cup to Keating, a square-cut emerald glittering on her finger in the candlelight. Keating expressed his admiration for the capital and escaped to examine the model. He stood before it for a correct number of minutes, scalding his lips with the hot liquid that smelled of cloves. Holcomb, who never looked in the direction of the model and never missed a guest stopping before it, slapped Keating's shoulder and said something appropriate about young fellows learning the beauty of the style of the Renaissance. Then Keating wandered off, shook a few hands without enthusiasm, and glanced at his wristwatch, calculating the time when it would be permissible to leave. Then he stopped. Beyond a broad arch in a small library, with three young men beside her, he saw Dominique Francone. She stood leaning against a column, a cocktail glass in her hand. She wore a suit of black velvet. The heavy cloth, which transmitted no light rays, held her anchored to reality by stopping the light that flowed too freely through the flesh of her hands, her neck, her face. A white spark of fire flashed like a cold metallic cross in the glass she held, as if it were a lens gathering the diffused radiance of her skin. Keating tore forward and found Francone in the crowd. Well, Peter, said Francone brightly, want me to get you a drink? Not so hot, he added, lowering his voice. But the Manhattans aren't too bad. No, said Keating. Thanks. Entre nous, said Francone, winking at the model of the capital. It's a holy mess, isn't it? Yes, said Keating. Miserable proportions. That dome looks like Holcomb's face imitating a sunrise on the roof. They had stopped in full view of the library, and Keating's eyes were fixed on the girl in black, inviting Francone to notice it. He enjoyed having Francone in a trap. And the plan, the plan. Do you see that on the second floor? Oh, said Francone, noticing. He looked at Keating, then at the library, then at Keating again. Well, said Francone at last, don't blame me afterward. You've asked for it. Come on. They entered the library together. Keating stopped, correctly, but allowing his eyes an improper intensity, while Francone beamed with unconvincing cheeriness. Dominique, my dear, may I present, this is Peter Keating, my own right hand. Peter, my daughter. How do you do? said Keating, his voice soft. Dominique bowed gravely. 
I have waited to meet you for such a long time, Miss Francone. This will be interesting, said Dominique. You will want to be nice to me, of course, and yet that won't be diplomatic. What do you mean, Miss Francone? Father would prefer you to be horrible with me. Father and I don't get along at all. Well, Miss Francone, I, I think it's only fair to tell you this at the beginning. You may want to redraw some conclusions. He was looking for Francone, but Francone had vanished. No, she said softly. Father doesn't do these things well at all. He's too obvious. You asked him for the introduction, but he shouldn't have let me notice that. However, it's quite all right, since we both admit it. Sit down. She slipped into a chair, and he sat down obediently beside her. The young men whom he did not know stood about for a few minutes, trying to be included in the conversation by smiling blankly, then wandered off. Keating thought with relief that there was nothing frightening about her. There was only a disquieting contrast between her words and the candid innocence of the manner she used to utter them. He did not know which to trust. I admit I asked for the introduction, he said. That's obvious anyway, isn't it? Who wouldn't ask for it? But don't you think that the conclusions I'll draw may have nothing to do with your father? Don't say that I'm beautiful and exquisite and like no one you've ever met before, and that you're very much afraid that you're going to fall in love with me. You'll say it eventually, but let's postpone it. Apart from that, I think we'll get along very nicely. But you're trying to make it very difficult for me, aren't you? Yes. Father should have warned you. He did. You should have listened. Be very considerate of Father. I've met so many of his own right hands that I was beginning to be skeptical. But you're the first one who's lasted. And who looks like he's going to last. I've heard a great deal about you. My congratulations. I've been looking forward to meeting you for years. And I've been reading your column with so much... He stopped. He knew he shouldn't have mentioned that. And above all, he shouldn't have stopped. So much, she asked gently. So much pleasure, he finished, hoping that she would let it go at that. Oh, yes, she said. The Ainsworth House. You designed it. I'm sorry. You just happen to be the victim of one of my rare attacks of honesty. I don't have them very often. As you know, if you've read my stuff yesterday. I've read it, and... Well, I'll follow your example, and I'll be perfectly frank. Don't take it as a complaint. One must never complain against one's critics. But really, that capital of Holcomb's is much worse than all those very things that you blasted us for. Why did you give him such a glowing tribute yesterday? Or did you have to? Don't flatter me. Of course I didn't have to. Do you think anyone on the paper pays enough attention to a column on home decoration to care what I say in it? Besides, I'm not even supposed to write about capitals. Only I'm getting tired of home decorations. Then why did you praise Holcomb? Because that capital of his is so awful that to pan it would have been an anticlimax. So I thought it would be amusing to praise it to the sky. It was. Is that the way you go about it? That's the way I go about it. But no one reads my column except housewives who can never afford to decorate their homes, so it doesn't matter at all. But what do you really like in architecture? I don't like anything in architecture. Well, you know, of course, that I won't believe that. Why do you write if you have nothing you want to say? To have something to do. Something more disgusting than many other things I could do. And more amusing. Come on, that's not a good reason. I never have any good reasons. But you must be enjoying your work. I am. Don't you see that I am? You know, I've actually envied you. 
working for a magnificent enterprise like the Wine and Papers, the largest organization in the country, commanding the best writing talent, and look, she said, leaning toward him confidentially, let me help you. If you had just met Father and he were working for the Wine and Papers, that would be exactly the right thing to say. But not with me. That's what I'd expect you to say, and I don't like to hear what I expect. It would be much more interesting if you said that the Wine and Papers are a contemptible dump heap of yellow journalism, and all their writers put together aren't worth two bits. Is that what you really think of them? Not at all. But I don't like people who try to say only what they think I think. Thanks. I'll need your help. I've never met anyone. Oh, no, of course, that's what you didn't want me to say. But I really meant it about your papers. I've always admired Gail Wynand. I've always wished I could meet him. What is he like? Just what Austin Heller called him. An exquisite bastard. He winced. He remembered where he had heard Austin Heller say that. The memory of Catherine seemed heavy and vulgar in the presence of the thin white hand he saw hanging over the arm of the chair before him. But I mean, he asked, what's he like in person? I don't know. I've never met him. You haven't? No. Oh, I've heard he's so interesting. Undoubtedly. When I'm in a mood for something decadent, I'll probably meet him. Do you know Tui? Oh, she said. He saw what he had seen in her eyes before, and he did not like the sweet gaiety of her voice. Oh, Ellsworth Tui, of course I know him. He's wonderful. He's a man I always enjoy talking to. He's such a perfect blackguard. Why, Miss Francone, you're the first person who's ever... I'm not trying to shock you. I meant all of it. I admire him. He's so complete. You don't meet perfection often in this world one way or the other, do you? And he's just that, sheer perfection in his own way. Everyone else is so unfinished, broken up into so many different pieces that don't fit together. But not Tui. He's a monolith. Sometimes when I feel bitter against the world, I find consolation in thinking that it's all right, that I'll be avenged, that the world will get what's coming to it. Because there's Ellsworth Tui. What do you want to be avenged for? She looked at him, her eyelids lifted for a moment, so that her eyes did not seem rectangular, but soft and clear. That was very clever of you, she said. That was the first clever thing you've said. Why? Because you knew what to pick out of all the rubbish I uttered. So I'll have to answer you. I'd like to be avenged for the fact that I have nothing to be avenged for. Now let's go on about Ellsworth Tui. Well, I've always heard, from everybody, that he's a sort of saint, the one pure idealist, utterly incorruptible, and that's quite true. A plain grafter would be much safer. But Tui is like a testing stone for people. You can learn about them by the way they take him. Why? What do you actually mean? She leaned back in her chair and stretched her arms down to her knees, twisting her wrists, palms out, the fingers of her two hands entwined. She laughed easily. Nothing that one should make a subject of discussion at a tea party. Kiki's right. She hates the sight of me. But she's got to invite me once in a while, and I can't resist coming because she's so obvious about not wanting me. You know, I told Ralston tonight what I really thought of his capital, but he wouldn't believe me. He only beamed and said that I was a very nice little girl. Well, aren't you? What? A very nice little girl. No, not today. I've made you thoroughly uncomfortable, so I'll make up for it. I'll tell you what I think of you, because you'll be worrying about that. 
I think you're smart and safe and obvious and quite ambitious, and you'll get away with it. And I like you. I'll tell father that I approve of his right hand very much. So you see, you have nothing to fear from the boss's daughter, though it would be better if I didn't say anything to father because my recommendation would work the other way with him. May I tell you only one thing that I think about you? Certainly, any number of them. I think it would have been better if you hadn't told me that you liked me. Then I would have had a better chance of its being true. She laughed. If you understand that, she said, then we'll get along beautifully. Then it might even be true. Gordon L. Prescott appeared in the arch of the ballroom, glass in hand. He wore a gray suit and a turtleneck sweater of silver wool. His boyish face looked freshly scrubbed, and he had his usual air of soap, toothpaste, and the outdoors. Dominique, darling, he cried, waving his glass. Hello, Keating, he added curtly. Dominique, where have you been hiding yourself? I heard you were here, and I've had a hell of a time looking for you. Hello, Gordon, she said. She said it quite correctly. There was nothing offensive in the quiet politeness of her voice. But following his high note of enthusiasm, her voice struck a tone that seemed flat and deadly in its indifference, as if the two sounds mingled into an audible counterpoint around the melodic thread of her contempt. Prescott had not heard. Darling, he said, you look lovelier every time I see you. One wouldn't think it were possible. Seventh time, said Dominique. What? Seventh time that you've said it when meeting me, Gordon. I'm counting them. You simply won't be serious, Dominique. You'll never be serious. Oh, yes, Gordon. I was just having a very serious conversation here with my friend, Peter Keating. A lady waved to Prescott, and he accepted the opportunity, escaping, looking very foolish. And Keating delighted in the thought that she had dismissed another man for a conversation she wished to continue with her friend, Peter Keating. But when he turned to her, she asked sweetly, What was it we were talking about, Mr. Keating? And then she was staring with too great an interest across the room at the wizened figure of a little man coughing over a whiskey glass. Why, said Keating, we were, oh, there's Eugene Pettingill, my great favorite. I must say hello to Eugene. And she was up moving across the room, her body leaning back as she walked, moving toward the most unattractive septuagenarian present. Keating did not know whether he had been made to join the Brotherhood of Gordon L. Prescott, or whether it had been only an accident. He returned to the ballroom reluctantly. He forced himself to join groups of guests and to talk. He watched Dominique Francon as she moved through the crowd, as she stopped in conversation with others. She never glanced at him again. He could not decide whether he had succeeded with her or failed miserably. He managed to be at the door when she was leaving. She stopped and smiled at him enchantingly. No, she said, before he could utter a word. You can't take me home. I have a car waiting. Thank you just the same. She was gone, and he stood at the door, helpless, and thinking furiously that he believed he was blushing. He felt a soft hand on his shoulder and turned to find Francone beside him. Going home, Peter? Let me give you a lift. But I thought you had to be at the club by seven. Oh, that's all right. I'll be a little late. Doesn't matter. I'll drive you home. No trouble at all. There was a peculiar expression of purpose on Francone's face, quite unusual for him and unbecoming. Keating followed him silently, amused, and said nothing when they were alone in the comfortable twilight of Francone's car.
Well, Francone asked ominously. Keating smiled. You're a pig, Guy. You don't know how to appreciate what you've got. Why didn't you tell me? She's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Oh, yes, said Francone darkly. Maybe that's the trouble. What trouble? Where do you see any trouble? What do you really think of her, Peter? Forget the looks. You'll see how quickly you'll forget that. What do you think? Well, I think she has a great deal of character. Thanks for the understatement. Francone was gloomily silent. And then he said with an awkward little note of something like hope in his voice, You know, Peter, I was surprised. I watched you, and you had quite a long chat with her. That's amazing. I fully expected her to chase you away with one nice poisonous crack. Maybe you could get along with her after all. I've concluded that you just can't tell anything about her. Maybe. You know, Peter, what I wanted to tell you is this. Don't pay any attention to what she said about my wanting you to be horrible with her. The heavy earnestness of that sentence was such a hint that Keating's lips moved to shape a soft whistle. But he caught himself in time. Francone added heavily, I don't want you to be horrible with her at all. You know, Guy, said Keating, in a tone of patronizing reproach, you shouldn't have run away like that. I never know how to speak to her. He sighed. I've never learned to. I can't understand what in blazes is the matter with her, but something is. She just won't behave like a human being. You know, she's been expelled from two finishing schools. How she ever got through college, I can't imagine, but I can tell you that I dreaded to open my mail for four solid years waiting for word of the inevitable. Then I thought, well, once she's out on her own, I'm through and I don't have to worry about it. But she's worse than ever. What do you find to worry about? I don't. I try not to. I'm glad when I don't have to think of her at all. I can't help it. I just wasn't cut out for a father. But sometimes I get to feel that it's my responsibility after all. Though God knows I don't want it, but still there it is. I should do something about it. There's no one else to assume it. You've let her frighten you, Guy, and there's really nothing to be afraid of. You don't think so? No. Maybe you're the man to handle her. I don't regret your meeting her now, and you know that I didn't want you to. Yes, I think you're the one man who could handle her. You... You're quite determined, aren't you, Peter, when you're after something? Well, said Keating, throwing one hand up in a careless gesture. I'm not afraid very often. Then he leaned back against the cushions as if he were tired, as if he had heard nothing of importance, and he kept silent for the rest of the drive. Francone kept silent also. Boys, said John Eric's knight, don't spare yourself on this. It's the most important thing we've had this year. Not much money, you understand, but the prestige, the connections. If we do land it, won't some of those great architects turn green? You see, Austin Heller has told me frankly that we're the third firm he's approached. He would have none of what those big fellows tried to sell him. So it's up to us, boys. You know, something different, unusual, but in good taste. And, you know, different. Now, do your best. His five designers sat in a semicircle before him. Gothic looked bored, and Miscellaneous looked discouraged in advance. Renaissance was following the course of a fly on the ceiling. Rourke asked, what did he actually say, Mr. Snite? Snite shrugged and looked at Rourke with amusement, as if he and Rourke shared a shameful secret about the new client, not worth mentioning. Nothing that makes great sense, quite between us boys, said Snite. 
He was somewhat inarticulate, considering his great command of the English language in print. He admitted he knew nothing about architecture. He didn't say whether he wanted it modernistic or period or what. He said something to the effect that he wanted a house of his own. But he's hesitated for a long time about building one, because all houses look alike to him, and they all look like hell. And he doesn't see how anyone can become enthusiastic about any house. And yet he has the idea that he wants a building he could love. A building that would mean something, is what he said, though he added that he didn't know what or how. There. That's about all he said. Not much to go on, and I wouldn't have undertaken to submit sketches if it weren't Austin Heller. But I grant you that it doesn't make sense. What's the matter, Rourke? Nothing, said Rourke. This ended the first conference on the subject of a residence for Austin Heller. Later that day, Snyde crowded his five designers into a train, and they went to Connecticut to see the site Heller had chosen. They stood on a lonely, rocky stretch of shore, three miles beyond an unfashionable little town. They munched sandwiches and peanuts, and they looked at a cliff rising in broken ledges from the ground to end in a straight, brutal, naked drop over the sea, a vertical shaft of rock forming a cross with the long, pale horizontal of the sea. There, said Snyte. That's it. He twirled a pencil in his hand. Damnable, eh? He sighed. I tried to suggest a more respectable location, but he didn't take it so well, so I had to shut up. He twirled the pencil. That's where he wants the house, right on top of that rock. He scratched the tip of his nose with the point of the pencil. I tried to suggest setting it farther back from the shore and keeping the damn rock for a view, but that didn't go so well either. He bit the eraser between the tips of his teeth. Just think of the blasting, the leveling one's got to do on that top. He cleaned his fingernail with the lead, leaving a black mark. Well, that's that. Observe the grade and the quality of the stone. The approach will be difficult. I have all the surveys and the photographs in the office. Well, who's got a cigarette? Well, I think that's about all. I'll help you with suggestions any time. Well, what time is that damn train back? Thus the five designers were started on their task. Four of them proceeded immediately at their drawing boards. Rourke returned alone to the site many times. Rourke's five months with Snyte stretched behind him like a blank. Had he wished to ask himself what he had felt, he would have found no answer, save in the fact that he remembered nothing of these months. He could remember each sketch he had made. He could, if he tried, remember what had happened to those sketches. He did not try. But he had not loved any of them as he loved the house of Austin Heller. He stayed in the drafting room through evening after evening, alone with a sheet of paper and the thought of a cliff over the sea. No one saw his sketches until they were finished. When they were finished, late one night, he sat at his table with the sheet spread before him, sat for many hours, one hand propping his forehead, the other hanging by his side, blood gathering in the fingers, numbing them, while the street beyond the window became deep blue, then pale gray. He did not look at the sketches. He felt empty and very tired. The house on the sketches had been designed not by Rourke, but by the cliff on which it stood. It was as if the cliff had grown and completed itself, and proclaimed the purpose for which it had been waiting. The house was broken into many levels, following the ledges of the rock, rising as it rose in gradual masses, in planes flowing together up into one consummate harmony. The walls, of the same granite as the rock, continued its vertical lines upward. The wide projecting terraces of concrete, silver as the sea, followed the line of the waves of the straight horizon. 
Rourke was still sitting at his table when the men returned to begin their day in the drafting room. Then the sketches were sent to Snyte's office. Two days later, the final version of the house to be submitted to Austin Heller, the version chosen and edited by John Eric Snyte, executed by the Chinese artist, lay swathed in tissue paper on a table. It was Rourke's house. His competitors had been eliminated. It was Rourke's house, but its walls were now of red brick. Its windows were cut to conventional size and equipped with green shutters. Two of its projecting wings were omitted. The great cantilevered terrace over the sea was replaced by a little wrought-iron balcony. And the house was provided with an entrance of ionic columns supporting a broken pediment and with a little spire supporting a weather vane. John Eric Knight stood by the table, his two hands spread in the air over the sketch without touching the virgin purity of its delicate colors. This is what Mr. Heller had in mind, I'm sure, he said. Pretty good. Yes, pretty good. Rourke, how many times do I have to ask you to not smoke around a final sketch? Stand away. You'll get ashes on it. Austin Heller was expected at twelve o'clock. But at half-past eleven, Mrs. Symington arrived unannounced and demanded to see Mr. Snyte immediately. Mrs. Symington was an imposing dowager who had just moved into her new residence designed by Mr. Snyte. Besides, Snyte expected a commission for an apartment house from her brother. He could not refuse to see her, and he bowed her into his office, where she proceeded to state without reticence of expression that the ceiling of her library had cracked and the bay windows of her drawing room were hidden under a perpetual veil of moisture which she could not combat. Snyte summoned his chief engineer, and they launched together into detailed explanations, apologies, and damnations of contractors. Mrs. Symington showed no sign of relenting when a signal buzzed on Snyte's desk, and the reception clerk's voice announced Austin Heller. It would have been impossible to ask Mrs. Symington to leave, or Austin Heller to wait. Snyte solved the problem by abandoning her to the soothing speech of his engineer and excusing himself for a moment. Then he emerged into the reception room, shook Heller's hand, and suggested, Would you mind stepping into the drafting room, Mr. Heller? Better light in there, you know, and the sketch is all ready for you, and I didn't want to take the chance of moving it. Heller did not seem to mind. He followed Snyte obediently into the drafting room, a tall, broad-shouldered figure in English tweeds with sandy hair and a square face drawn in countless creases around the ironical calm of his eyes. The sketch lay on the Chinese artist's table, and the artist stepped aside, diffidently, in silence. The next table was Rourke's. He stood with his back to Heller. He went on with his drawing and did not turn. The employees had been trained not to intrude on the occasions when Snyte brought a client into the drafting room. Snyte's fingertips lifted the tissue paper, as if raising the veil of a bride. Then he stepped back and watched Heller's face. Heller bent down and stood, hunched, drawn, intent, saying nothing for a long time. Listen, Mr. Snyte, he began at last. Listen, I think... and stopped. Snyte waited patiently, pleased, sensing the approach of something he didn't want to disturb. This, said Heller suddenly, loudly, slamming his fist down on the drawing, and Snyte winced. This is the nearest anyone's ever come to it. I knew you'd like it, Mr. Heller, said Snyte. I don't said Heller. Snyte blinked and waited. It's so near somehow, said Heller regretfully. But it's not right. I don't know where, but it's not. Do forgive me if this sounds vague, but I like things at once or I don't. I know that I wouldn't be comfortable, for instance, with that entrance. It's a lovely entrance. 
but you won't even notice it because you've seen it so often. Ah, but allow me to point out a few considerations, Mr. Heller. One wants to be modern, of course, but one wants to preserve the appearance of a home, a combination of stateliness and coziness, you understand? A very austere house like this must have a few softening touches. It is strictly correct architecturally. No doubt, said Heller. I wouldn't know about that. I've never been strictly correct in my life. Just let me explain this scheme, and you'll see that it's... I know, said Heller wearily. I know, I'm sure you're right. Only... His voice had a sound of the eagerness he wished he could feel. Only if it had some unity, some... some central idea, which is there and isn't. If it seemed to live, which it doesn't. It lacks something, and it has too much. If it were cleaner, more clear-cut. What's the word I've heard used? If it were integrated. Rourke turned. He was at the other side of the table. He seized the sketch. His hand flashed forward, and a pencil ripped across the drawing, slashing raw black lines over the untouchable watercolor. The lines blasted off the ionic columns, the pediment, the entrance, the spire, the blinds, the bricks. They flung up two wings of stone. They rent the windows wide. They splintered the balcony and hurled a terrace over the sea. It was being done before the others had grasped the moment when it began. Then Snipe jumped forward, but Heller seized his wrist and stopped him. Rourke's hand went on raising walls, splitting, rebuilding in furious strokes. Rourke threw his head up once, for a flash of a second, to look at Heller across the table. It was all the introduction they needed. It was like a handshake. Rourke went on, and when he threw the pencil down, the house, as he had designed it, stood completed in an ordered pattern of black streaks. The performance had not lasted five minutes. Snite made an attempt at a sound. As Heller said nothing, Snite felt free to whirl on Rourke and scream, You're fired, goddamn you! Get out of here! You're fired! We're both fired, said Austin Heller, winking to Rourke. Come on. Have you had any lunch? Let's go someplace. I want to talk to you. Rourke went to his locker to get his hat and coat. The drafting room witnessed a stupefying act, and all work stopped to watch it. Austin Heller picked up the sketch, folded it over four times, cracking the sacred cardboard, and slipped it into his pocket. But, Mr. Heller, Snite stammered, let me explain. It's perfectly all right if that's what you want. We'll do the sketch over. Let me explain. Not now, said Heller. Not now, he added at the door. I'll send you a check. Then Heller was gone, and Rourke with him. And the door, as Heller swung it shut behind them, sounded like the closing paragraph in one of Heller's articles. Rourke had not said a word. In the softly lighted booth of the most expensive restaurant that Rourke had ever entered, across the crystal and silver glittering between them, Heller was saying, Because that's the house I want, because that's the house I've always wanted. Can you build it for me? Draw up the plans and supervise the construction? Yes, said Rourke. How long will it take if we start at once? About eight months. I'll have the house by late fall? Yes. Just like that sketch? Just like that. Look, I have no idea what kind of a contract one makes with an architect, and you must know, so draw up one and let my lawyer okay it this afternoon, will you? Yes. Heller studied the man who sat facing him. He saw the hand lying on the table before him. Heller's awareness became focused on that hand. He saw the long fingers, the sharp joints, the prominent veins. 
he had the feeling that he was not hiring this man, but surrendering himself into his employment. How old are you? asked Heller. Whoever you are. Twenty-six. Do you want any references? Hell no, I have them here in my pocket. What's your name? Howard Rourke. Heller produced a checkbook, spread it open on the table, and reached for his fountain pen. Look, he said, writing. I'll give you five hundred dollars on account. Get yourself an office or whatever you have to get. And go ahead. He tore off the check and handed it to Rourke, between the tips of two straight fingers, leaning forward on his elbow, swinging his wrist in a sweeping curve. His eyes were narrowed, amused, watching Rourke quizzically. But the gesture had the air of a salute. The check was made out to Howard Rourke, architect. Chapter 11 Howard Rourke opened his own office. It was one large room on the top of an old building with a broad window high over the roofs. He could see the distant band of the Hudson at his windowsill with the small streaks of ships moving under his fingertips when he pressed them to the glass. He had a desk, two chairs, and a huge drafting table. The glass entrance door bore the words, Howard Rourke, Architect. He stood in the hall for a long time looking at the words. Then he went in and slammed his door. He picked up a T-square from the table and flung it down again as if throwing an anchor. John Eric Snyde had objected. When Rourke came to the office for his drawing instruments, Snyde emerged into the reception room, shook his hand warmly, and said, Well, Rourke, well, how are you? Come in, come right in, I want to speak to you. And with Rourke seated before his desk, Snyde proceeded loudly. Look, fellow, I hope you've got enough sense not to hold it against me. Anything that I might have said yesterday, you know how it is, I lost my head a little, and it wasn't what you did, but that you had to go and do it on that sketch, that sketch. Well, never mind. No hard feelings? No, said Rourke. None at all. Of course you're not fired. You didn't take me seriously, did you? You can go right back to work here this very minute. What for, Mr. Snyde? What do you mean, what for? Oh, you're thinking of the Heller house. But you're not taking Heller seriously, are you? You saw how he is. That madman can change his mind sixty times a minute. He won't really give you that commission, you know? It isn't as simple as that. It isn't being done that way. We've signed the contract yesterday. Well, you have. Well, that's splendid. Well, look, Rourke, I'll tell you what we'll do. You bring the commission back to us, and I'll let you put your name on it with mine, John Eric Snyde and Howard Rourke, and we'll split the fee. That's in addition to your salary, and you're getting a raise, incidentally. Then we'll have the same arrangement on any other commission you bring in. And, Lord, man, what are you laughing at? Excuse me, Mr. Snyde, I'm sorry. I don't believe you understand said Snyte, bewildered. Don't you see? It's your insurance. You don't want to break loose just yet. Commissions won't fall into your lap like this. Then what will you do? This way you'll have a steady job and you'll be building toward independent practice, if that's what you're after. In four or five years you'll be ready to take the leap. That's the way everybody does it, you see? Yes. Then you agree? No. But good Lord, man, you've lost your mind. To set up a loan now? Without experience, without connections, without, well, without anything at all. I never heard of such a thing. Ask anybody in the profession. See what they'll tell you. It's preposterous. Probably. Listen, Rourke, won't you please listen? I'll listen if you want me to, Mr. Snyde. But I think I should tell you now that nothing you can say will make any difference. If you don't mind that, I don't mind listening. Snyde went on speaking for a long time, and Rourke listened, without objecting, explaining, or answering. 
Well, if that's how you are, don't expect me to take you back when you find yourself on the pavement. I don't expect it, Mr. Snight. Don't expect anyone else in the profession to take you in after they hear what you've done to me. I don't expect that either. For a few days, Snight thought of suing Rourke and Heller. But he decided against it because there was no precedent to follow under the circumstances, because Heller had paid him for his efforts, and the house had been actually designed by Rourke, and because no one ever sued Austin Heller. The first visitor to Rourke's office was Peter Keating. He walked in without warning one noon, walked straight across the room and sat down on Rourke's desk, smiling gaily, spreading his arms wide in a sweeping gesture. Well, Howard, he said. Well, fancy that. He had not seen Rourke for a year. Hello, Peter, said Rourke. Your own office, your own name and everything? Already, just imagine. Who told you, Peter? Oh, one hears things. You wouldn't expect me not to keep track of your career now, would you? You know what I've always thought of you. And I don't have to tell you that I congratulate you and wish you the very best. No, you don't have to. Nice place you got here, light and roomy. Not quite as imposing as it should be, perhaps, but what can one expect at the beginning? And then the prospects are uncertain, aren't they, Howard? Quite. It's an awful chance you've taken. Probably. Are you really going to go through with it? I mean, on your own? Looks that way, doesn't it? Well, it's not too late, you know. I thought when I heard the story that you'd surely turn it over to Snight and make a smart deal with him. I didn't. Aren't you really going to? No. Keating wondered why he should experience that sickening feeling of resentment. Why he had come here hoping to find the story untrue, hoping to find Rourke uncertain and willing to surrender. That feeling had haunted him ever since he'd heard the news about Rourke. The sensation of something unpleasant that remained after he'd forgotten the cause. The feeling would come back to him without reason, a blank wave of anger, and he would ask himself, Now what the hell? What was it I heard today? Then he would remember. Oh, yes, Rourke. Rourke's opened his own office. He would ask himself impatiently, So what? And know at the same time that the words were painful to face and humiliating like an insult. You know, Howard, I admire your courage. Really, you know, I've had much more experience and I've got more of a standing in the profession. Don't mind saying it. I'm only speaking objectively. But I wouldn't dare take such a step. No, you wouldn't. So you've made the jump first. Well, well, who would have thought it? I wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you, Peter. I know you'll succeed. I'm sure of it. Are you? Of course, of course I am. Aren't you? I haven't thought of it. You haven't thought of it? Not much. Then you're not sure, Howard. You aren't? Why do you ask that so eagerly? What? Why, no, not eagerly, but of course I'm concerned. Howard, it's bad psychology not to be certain now in your position. So you have doubts? None at all. But you said, I'm quite sure of things, Peter. Have you thought about getting your registration? I've applied for it. You've got no college degree, you know. They'll make it difficult for you at the examination. Probably. What are you going to do if you don't get the license? I'll get it. Well, I guess I'll be seeing you now at the AGA, if you don't go hi-hat on me, because you'll be a full-fledged member and I'm only a junior. I'm not joining the AGA. What do you mean you're not joining? You're eligible now. Possibly. You'll be invited to join. 
tell them not to bother. What? You know, Peter, we had a conversation just like this seven years ago when you tried to talk me into joining your fraternity at Stanton. Don't start it again. You won't join the AGA when you have a chance to? I won't join anything, Peter, at any time. But don't you realize how it helps? And what? In being an architect. I don't like to be helped in being an architect. You're just making things harder for yourself. I am. And it will be plenty hard, you know. I know. You'll make enemies of them if you refuse such an invitation. I'll make enemies of them anyway. The first person to whom Rourke had told the news was Henry Cameron. Rourke went to New Jersey the day after he signed the contract with Heller. It had rained, and he found Cameron in the garden, shuffling slowly down the damp paths, leaning heavily on a cane. In the past winter, Cameron had improved enough to walk a few hours each day. He walked with effort, his body bent. He looked at the first shoots of green on the earth under his feet. He lifted his cane once in a while, bracing his legs to stand firm for a moment. With the tip of the cane, he touched a folded green cup and watched it spill a glistening drop in the twilight. He saw Rourke coming up the hill and frowned. He had seen Rourke only a week ago, and because these visits meant too much to both of them, neither wished the occasions to be too frequent. Well, Cameron asked gruffly, what do you want here again? I have something to tell you. It can wait. I don't think so. Well, I'm opening my own office. I've just signed for my first building. Cameron rotated his cane, the tip pressed into the earth, the shaft describing a wide circle, his two hands bearing down on the handle, the palm of one on the back of the other. His head nodded slowly in rhythm with the motion for a long time. His eyes closed. Then he looked at Rourke and said, Well, don't brag about it. He added, Help me to sit down. It was the first time Cameron had ever pronounced this sentence. His sister and Rourke had long since learned that the one outrage forbidden in his presence was any intention of helping him to move. Rourke took his elbow and led him to a bench. Cameron asked harshly, staring ahead at the sunset. What? For whom? How much? He listened silently to Rourke's story. He looked for a long time at the sketch on cracked cardboard with the pencil lines over the watercolor. Then he asked many questions about the stone, the steel, the roads, the contractors, the costs. He offered no congratulations. He made no comment. Only when Rourke was leaving, Cameron said suddenly, Howard, when you open your office, take snapshots of it and show them to me. Then he shook his head, looked away guiltily, and swore. I'm being senile. Forget it. Rourke said nothing. Three days later, he came back. You're getting to be a nuisance, said Cameron. Rourke handed him an envelope without a word. Cameron looked at the snapshots, at the one of the broad, bare office, of the wide window, of the entrance door. He dropped the others and held the one of the entrance door for a long time. Well, he said at last, I did live to see it. He dropped the snapshot. Not quite exactly, he added. Not in the way I had wanted to, but I did. It's like the shadows, some say, we'll see of the earth in that other world. Maybe that's how I'll see the rest of it. I'm learning. He picked up the snapshot. Howard, 
he said. Look at it. He held it between them. It doesn't say much, only Howard Rourke architect. But it's like those mottos men carved over the entrance of a castle and died for. It's a challenge in the face of something so vast and so dark that all the pain on earth. And do you know how much suffering there is on earth? All the pain comes from that thing you are going to face. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it should be unleashed against you. I only know that it will be. And I know that if you carry these words through to the end, it will be a victory, Howard. Not just for you, but for something that should win, that moves the world and never wins acknowledgement. It will vindicate so many who have fallen before you, who have suffered as you will suffer. May God bless you, or whoever it is that is alone to see the best, the highest possible to human hearts. You're on your way to hell, Howard. Rourke walked up the path to the top of the cliff where the steel hulk of the Heller House rose into a blue sky. The skeleton was up, and the concrete was being poured. The great mats of the terraces hung over the silver sheet of water quivering far below. Plumbers and electricians had started laying their conduits. He looked at the squares of sky delimited by the slender lines of girders and columns, the empty cubes of space he had torn out of the sky. His hands moved involuntarily, filling in the planes of walls to come, enfolding the future rooms. A stone clattered from under his feet and went bouncing down the hill, resonant drops of sound rolling in the sunny clarity of the summer air. He stood on the summit, his legs planted wide apart, leaning back against space. He looked at the materials before him, the knobs of rivets and steel, the sparks in blocks of stone, the weaving spirals in fresh yellow planks. Then he saw a husky figure enmeshed in electric wires, a bulldog face spreading into a huge grin and china-blue eyes gloating in a kind of unholy triumph. Mike, he said incredulously. Mike had left for a big job in Philadelphia months ago, long before the appearance of Heller in Snight's office, and Mike had never heard the news, or so he supposed. Hello, Red, said Mike, much too casually, and added, Hello, boss. Mike, how did you? You're a hell of an architect. Neglecting the job like that is my third day here waiting for you to show up. Mike, how did you get here? Why such a come-down? He had never known Mike to bother with small private residences. Don't play the sap. You know how I got here. You didn't think I'd miss it, your first house, did you? And you think it's a come-down? Well, maybe it is. And maybe it's the other way around. Rourke extended his hand, and Mike's grimy fingers closed about it ferociously, as if the smudges he left implanted in Rourke's skin said everything he wanted to say. And because he was afraid that he might say it, Mike growled, Run along, boss, run along. Don't clog up the works like that. Rourke walked through the house. There were moments when he could be precise, impersonal, and stop to give instructions, as if this were not his house but only a mathematical problem when he felt the existence of pipes and rivets, while his own person vanished. There were moments when something rose within him, not a thought nor a feeling, but a wave of some physical violence, and then he wanted to stop, to lean back, to feel the reality of his person heightened by the frame of steel that rose dimly about the bright, outstanding existence of his body at its center. He did not stop. He went on calmly. 
but his hands betrayed what he wanted to hide. His hands reached out, ran slowly down the beams and joints. The workers in the house had noticed it. They said, That guy's in love with the thing. He can't keep his hands off. The workers liked him. The contractor's superintendents did not. He had had trouble in finding a contractor to erect the house. Several of the better firms had refused the commission. We don't do that kind of stuff. Nah, we won't bother. Too complicated for a small job like that. Who the hell wants that kind of a house? Most likely we'll never collect from the crank afterwards. To hell with it. Never did anything like it. Wouldn't know how to go about it. I'll stick to construction that is construction. One contractor had looked at the plans briefly and thrown them aside, declaring with finality, It won't stand. It will, said Rourke. The contractor drawled indifferently. Yeah, and who are you to tell me, mister? He had found a small firm that needed the work and undertook it, charging more than the job warranted, on the ground of the chance they were taking with a queer experiment. The construction went on, and the foreman obeyed sullenly, in disapproving silence, as if they were waiting for their predictions to come true, and would be glad when the house collapsed about their heads. Rourke had bought an old Ford, and drove down to the job more often than was necessary. It was difficult to sit at a desk in his office, to stand at a table, forcing himself to stay away from the construction site. At the site, there were moments when he wished to forget his office and his drawing board, to seize the men's tools and go to work on the actual erection of the house, as he had worked in his childhood, to build that house with his own hands. He walked through the structure, stepping lightly over piles of planks and coils of wire. He made notes. He gave brief orders in a harsh voice. He avoided looking in Mike's direction. But Mike was watching him, following his progress through the house. Mike winked at him in understanding whenever he passed by. Mike said once, Control yourself, Red. You're open like a book. God, it's indecent to be so happy. Rourke stood on the cliff by the structure and looked at the countryside, at the long gray ribbon of the road twisting past along the shore. An open car drove by, fleeing into the country. The car was overfilled with people bound for a picnic. There was a jumble of bright sweaters and scarves fluttering in the wind a jumble of voices, shrieking without purpose over the roar of the motor, and overstressed hiccups of laughter. A girl sat sidewise, her legs flung over the side of the car. She wore a man's straw hat slipping down to her nose, and she yanked savagely at the strings of a ukulele, ejecting raucous sounds, yelling, Hey! These people were enjoying a day of their existence. They were shrieking to the sky, their release from the work and the burdens of the days behind them. They had worked and carried the burdens in order to reach a goal, and this was the goal. He looked at the car as it streaked past. He thought that there was a difference, some important difference, between the consciousness of this day in him and in them. He thought that he should try to grasp it, but he forgot. He was looking at a truck panting up the hill loaded with a glittering mound of cut granite. Austin Heller came to look at the house frequently, and watched it grow, curious, still a little astonished. He studied Rourke and the house with the same meticulous scrutiny. He felt as if he could not quite tell them apart. Heller, the fighter against compulsion, was baffled by Rourke. A man so impervious to compulsion, 
that he became a kind of compulsion himself, an ultimatum against things Heller could not define. Within a week, Heller knew that he had found the best friend he would ever have, and he knew that the friendship came from Rourke's fundamental indifference. In the deeper reality of Rourke's existence, there was no consciousness of Heller, no need for Heller, no appeal, no demand. Heller felt a line drawn, which he could not touch. Beyond that line, Rourke asked nothing of him and granted him nothing. But when Rourke looked at him with approval, when Rourke smiled, when Rourke praised one of his articles, Heller felt the strangely clean joy of a sanction that was neither a bribe nor alms. In the summer evenings they sat together on a ledge halfway up the hill and talked, while darkness mounted slowly up the beams of the house above them, the last sun-rays retreating to the tips of the steel uprights. What is it that I like so much about the house you're building for me, Howard? A house can have integrity, just like a person, said Rourke, and just as seldom. In what way? We'll look at it. Every piece of it is there because the house needs it, and for no other reason. You see it from here as it is inside. The rooms in which you'll live made the shape. The relation of masses was determined by the distribution of space within. The ornament was determined by the method of construction, an emphasis of the principle that makes it stand. You can see each stress, each support that meets it. Your own eyes go through a structural process when you look at the house. You can follow each step. You see it rise. You know what made it and why it stands. But you've seen buildings with columns that support nothing, with purposeless cornices, with pilasters, moldings, false arches, false windows. You've seen buildings that look as if they contained a single large hall. They have solid columns and single solid windows six floors high. But you enter and find six stories inside. Or buildings that contain a single hall, but with a facade cut up into floor lines, band courses, tiers of windows. Do you understand the difference? Your house is made by its own needs. Those others are made by the need to impress. The determining motive of your house is the house. The determining motive of the other is in the audience. Do you know that that's what I've felt in a way? I've felt that when I move into this house, I'll have a new sort of existence, and even my simple daily routine will have a kind of honesty or dignity that I can't quite define. Don't be astonished if I tell you that I feel as if I'll have to live up to that house. I intended that, said Rourke. And incidentally, thank you for all the thought you seem to have taken about my comfort. There are so many things I noticed that had never occurred to me before, but you've planned them as if you knew all my needs. For instance, my study is the room I'll need most, and you've given it the dominant spot. And incidentally, I see where you've made it the dominant mass from the outside, too. And then the way it connects with the library, and the living room well out of my way, and the guest rooms where I won't hear too much of them, and all that. You were very considerate of me. You know, said Rourke, I haven't thought of you at all. I thought of the house. He added, Perhaps that's why I knew how to be considerate of you. The Heller House was completed in November of 1926. In January of 1927, the Architectural Tribune published a survey of the best American homes erected during the past year. It devoted twelve large glossy pages to photographs of the twenty-four houses its editors had selected as the worthiest architectural achievements. The Heller House was not mentioned. 
The real estate sections of the New York papers presented each Sunday brief accounts of the notable new residences in the vicinity. There was no account of the Heller House. The yearbook of the Architects Guild of America, which presented magnificent reproductions of what it chose as the best buildings of the country under the title Looking Forward, gave no reference to the Heller House. There were many occasions when lecturers rose to platforms and addressed trim audiences on the subject of the progress of American architecture. No one spoke of the Heller House. In the club rooms of the AGA, some opinions were expressed. It's a disgrace to the country, said Ralston Holcomb, that a thing like that Heller House is allowed